I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, not the Pope, but it would be kind of cool to have a big white hat. Bionic. You know, if you were the Pope, I wouldn't want to see you in the same room with Chris Pinto. No, no, no. That would probably be a Royal Rumble. Yes, because we have one of our favorites back again, Chris Pinto, who is the founder of Dullum Films and the writer and producer of a new documentary called A Lamp in the Dark, Mm -hmm. uh, is on to talk about the historical and continuing battle to protect God's word and its hidden impact on world history and Christianity today. Wow. And I think it is a provocative show, wouldn't you say, this week? I would say, indeed, especially the last 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, but you got to listen to the rest of it just for that, No, no, right? no, I mean, it's all good, but there's like there's one little effect what he tosses out in the last 30 seconds or so that's really Yeah, you're still thinking about that, aren't you? Yeah. We'll be thinking about all of it. So with no further ado, here's Chris Pinto. We'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, like a lamp. But in the dark, bionic. <laughs> that just brings tears to my eyes just hearing that. Uh, it's it's well. I'm, Let me guess. Get a new that, acting gig. Could that have any kind of foreshadowing associated with it? No, of course not. It could be uh, regarding our guest that we have this week, mm-hmm. uh, an old friend of our show, Chris Pinto, who's the founder of Adullam Films, and is writing producer of a brand new documentary uh, out of his uh, his company called A Lamp in the Dark. And we are going to talk about the historical and continuing battle to protect God's word and its hidden impact on world history and Christianity today. And Chris Pinto, it's wonderful having you back with your fans and friends here at Future Quake. It's great to be back on the show with you guys. Every time, uh, every time I hear about Future Quake, you guys are uh, having more and more interesting guests on the show. I, I just wish I could be one of them. Yeah. Well, when those well, interesting guess what? you are <laughs> when those interesting guests are not available, we appreciate you filling in. in the main <laughs> I'm just trying to trying to help out. <laughs> yeah. In your uh, your your travel guides that you produce there. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I don't see a lot of your work on public access TV. You know, yeah. I mean it's. It's uh, some primo stuff, and it's classic Future Quake material. Since you've been on our show a number of times before, and we have a lot of material to cover here today, like normal when you're on, uh, we're going to dispense with a detailed discussion of your background and rather direct our listeners to our archive of shows with you at futurequake.com that they can access via the Past Shows tab for them to listen to your detailed resume. Uh, I would like to say that... uh, I think you could be regarded as the preeminent documentarian within Christendom and now being one of the most esteemed within the worldwide cinematic community as well, having carved out a unique sphere, style, and approach uh, within the artistic medium. You know, I would totally agree with that. I think the particularly... His particularly brilliant is the way that he chooses his actors. Well, I was going to I was going to bring that up. Uh, <clears throat> the amazingly skilled and attractive actors that he has selected yes. for this immense action thriller reenactment segments he has. You know, there's two in particular that come to mind. Yeah, who, you know, well, I might I, be thinking the same too. I think, Academy Award. Maybe? I think they redefine Oscar. the archetype yeah. of mad monks, <laughs> the soldiers, and townsfolk in the public consciousness. Indeed. Uh, you know, in addition to their legendary radio accomplishments. 
Indeed. Maybe I we know. could leave it up to our listeners to guess who do that I might see, be. Do I see yeah. uh, a best best actor award, a sharing a best actor award? Well, you know, we could not stay away from the cinematic medium forever. No. We know people have been wanting us for a long time. It's like seeing the Beatles get chased down the street. <laughs> you know, we finally succumbed to it. So uh, we know we were used, we were exploited by Adalim Films in A Lamp in the Dark just to bring oh, in well, the extra yeah. celebrity factor yeah. into it. But that's, that's part of the... Uh, that's part of the extra benefit that our Futurian listeners get, right? When they they pick up a lamp in the dark, they get to see Doctor Future and Tom Bayard. You guys, you guys were both brilliant. Uh, your audience should know that you were you were sometimes villains, sometimes victims, as in the case of Tom Bionic. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes the killer, sometimes being killed. Yeah, you, know, you were both brilliant at it. Either way, you know the only thing I really thought was it was you sort of covered over some of our stuff with some Bible verses. <laughs> and, and readings and stuff from the reformers, and I thought that got in the way well, I thought, of our performance. Well, I thought his a casting bit. was particularly good, in my opinion, because he said, "This face, this guy's got a face built for radio, so let's well, put a helmet on him." That's true. That's <laughs> like you, genius. You did look great in that yeah. helmet. Yeah. Well, you interrupted me in the middle of me uh, uh, fa- fawning, fawning over Chris Pinto. Yeah. Uh, his uh, reputation is evidenced by his numerous awards from the New York and Los Angeles film communities, mm-hmm. as well as from the television media industry. Uh, your new per- publica- or publication production that was just released called A Lamp in the Dark uh, and continues your evolution in producing an ever more stylish and dramatic artistic work. Albeit with a degree of Christian research and scholarliness, I don't think we find anywhere else. Yeah. Can you think of any other Christian documentaries that are as heavy on the uh, research end as Adolam films? No, not off the top of my head. Yeah. Well, I hope you appreciate that. In fact, let me just close by saying that I think your visual and narrative style are uh, obtaining a consistent structure that could be known as Pinto-esque by aficionados. Do, do you hear that quite a bit? Well, you know, I, 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 uh, I, well, I don't know about Pinto-esque. I think that's kind of a new, uh, a new term, but I like it. I like it. It's, uh, I am, I'm very honored, really, you guys. Uh, well, uh, I, you, you honor me with your words. You are very, very kind. Your, your, your narration could, could just take reading from a phone book and make it menacing and exciting at the same time. Now, I'd like to try well, that sometime. I, you know, from from the beginning of uh, of starting Adullam Films, I just think Bible prophecy and you know God's great plan unfolding upon the earth, you know, with with history, with everything happening with a new world order, uh, and what's been happening for more than a thousand years. I think it's mm-hmm. just the most fascinating uh, thing, the most interesting uh, thing happening in the world. Way more interesting because I used to be very involved in chasing the Hollywood dream and trying right. to be a Hollywood filmmaker, actor type person. Right. And uh, since coming to, you know, since I got saved and since the Lord opened my understanding, uh, he's shown me that you know, the truth, you know, the truth in, in the Lord Jesus is far more, uh, not only is it far more true, obviously, but it's also much more interesting, much more fascinating, much more compelling uh, and uh, much more so than than the fictions and and things that I used to chase after mm. Mm. Uh, before I became a believer. Mm. Even so I try to make. I'm sorry. I I just want to say I try to make films that you know with with music and drama and whatever that really communicates what I think is is 
just God's exciting plan unfolding mm-hmm. upon the earth. Mm-hmm. And lots of candles. <laughs> it's that time. So you're saying what's going on in the prophetic word and what God is doing in the world today is better than dancing with the stars? I, b- I believe talent? it is. Okay. I believe it is. All right. <clears throat> Although I would like to see the uh, dancing with the alternative Christian media personalities. <laughs> Yeah. And now we have Dr. Stan Montes. Yeah, and Constance Cumbie doing a rumba. <laughs> I think that would be interesting to see. Now, regarding your just-released Lamp in the Dark documentary, what made you decide uh, to do this kind of extensive, time-consuming project, and why now amongst all the other high-priority topics I know that you want to pursue? Well, I think the, uh, well, I think the, I think the Bible, obviously, for the Christian community, uh, is a very important issue because what's happening with the progression of the Bible today, I mean, a lot of Christians note that, you know, the every time a new edition is developed with our Bibles, they seem to become farther and farther removed from the original Word of God. And it's as though, especially now with the Message Bible, that is becoming more and more normalized, by mainstream ministries, where I'm, I'm hearing people quote the message continually. Uh, we find uh, message verses and greeting cards and things like this in the uh, Christian bookstores and whatnot. But the Word of God, God's original Word, set down in Greek and Hebrew and partly Aramaic, uh, is being changed continually. And they're coming out with uh, all of these, you know, they've got the gender-perfect Bibles, uh, there's talk about having some kind of a universalist uh, Bible that's mm. going to omit, you know, the entire book of uh, Revelation at some point. Wow. Uh, then you have I've the conservative st- Bible. I don't know if you've looked on that, where they have yeah. Jesus' words in red and then, like, yeah. conservative principles in, like, more red. That's not a joke either. Right, yeah. No, yeah, I, I can well believe it. There are so many different... Uh, variant Bible translations that are happening, and a lot of Christians have noted that something's going on with it. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're all familiar with uh, uh, the big King James debate that has, you know, raged on and off for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but even 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 beyond that, even people who aren't necessarily um, uh, part of the King James only camp, as it were, can recognize that something is happening. You know, there is a corruption of the Word of God. Uh, in these variant translations, that mm-hmm. seems to be, you know, an ongoing, evolving process. And the question is, you know, where is this whole thing going to be 10 years from now? Where is it going to be 20 years from now? Will the message be the King James, you know, equivalent 20 years from now? Will that become yeah. the standard Bible? Right, right. And, uh, and what will the understanding of the Word of God be? Uh, Jesus says, you know, prophetically, when the Son of Man returns, will he find the faith on the earth now, uh, the bible now is this why say, you is this why you chose to do this right now do you feel a sense of urgency to hurry and get this message out now i know you have a lot of other very important projects that you've talked about doing as well uh you you feel like there's a sense of urgency to move this up to the top of the list well certainly that and certainly the because i think the key to understanding this uh this progression is the involvement of rome and the Vatican in biblical translation, which Mm -hmm. is largely unknown by evangelicals and Protestant Christians in America today. Mm -hmm. Uh, People don't realize uh, how heavily involved the Vatican is uh, and has been for, you know, more than 100 years now 
in biblical translation, in particular with the United Bible Society, with the American Bible Society. Um, and so uh, that w- combined with the ecumenical movement uh, that's taking place where you know, Rome is very clearly trying to unite the world religions into a single world uh, religious system, and, and that's been going on you know, since mm-hmm. Vatican Council II. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you have a lot of evangelicals who uh, believe that we should join hands with Rome, who believe that we should, you know, just count Rome as another uh, denomination of Christianity and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, when you examine Rome in the modern world, uh, she is often going about and beautifying and validating. Uh, certain characters, certain figures and events that took place in the Middle Ages. But the problem is is that most Christians don't have any knowledge of those people and those events. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we're doing in, uh, in this film is showing the history, not only of the Bible, but also of the Church for the last 2,000 years. And we start in the first century, and we go up through the development, really, of Roman Catholicism in the fourth century with Constantine. Great. Well, I want to. Yeah, I I want to get 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 into that in detail. But basically, that is the a brief capsule description of the the purpose and scope of this. Is you're really given the history of the preservation of God's word in this series and of the impact of the church in the world itself as a result. Correct. Absolutely, and also to to uh, help define for believers in the modern world what this conflict with Rome has been uh, for over a thousand years. And to ask the question that a number of authors have asked, guys like Dave Hunt, uh, Roger Oakland, and others, uh, have asked the question, you know, has Rome turned over a new leaf? Uh, has she, you know, repented of the, uh, you know, her abuses of the Dark Ages and so on? And is she now, you know, an angel of light who's trying to, you know, bring about world peace, et cetera, and so on? Or is she simply pursuing new tactics uh, to, you know, to achieve right. an ancient agenda, her ancient goal of bringing the whole world under her thumb? Okay. Um, and that's the question that we ask throughout the film. Well, I want to start getting to some of the details of it now. Uh, you show in your documentary, and I, and I don't, of course, there's so much material there in three hours, that we can only cover a small part of it, and if all we did was focus on the details. But I want to just hit a few questions, and some of the questions I'll ask you um, relate to questions that a listener might have, or a viewer, excuse me, when they watch the video and what, what they might be led to want to know afterwards. And so some of these questions are really clarifying the purpose, you know, ramifications of what you share in the very provocative data you have. You show in your documentary that the battle of religious institutions against those who stood on their convictions uh, that they derived from teaching of the Bible started very early in the church age. And as you were alluding to at the time of Constantine, who, a person who united the church and the state uh, really under, under one office and person, and whom I suspect is the, the writer of the apocalyptic white horse in Revelation. Uh, you say in the documentary that while he was building churches, as the leader of the Roman Church, he was also presiding over pagan ceremonies, according to the reference you cited, and that mm-hmm. he had later enacted what he was called the Edict of Milan, is that correct? Right. That ended freedom of Christian expression, unless it coincided with the dogma of the Roman Church. 
So while while he merged the state in in religion, and the Christians thought, oh, this is great, we're now official, uh, we, we'll have some protection. Shortly thereafter, he says, yeah, you can have your expression as a Christian as long as it's what I it's what I say. Now, do well, we do? That was, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That wasn't the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan actually legalized Christianity. Oh, excuse me. Initially in 313, and well, then it was a later edict, the, the Edict Against Heretics. Yes, I'm sorry, uh, yes. That was where he limited what you could believe as a Christian and began to persecute uh, those who disagreed with the state religion. Okay, now, um, now the lesson that I'm wondering from this today is do we face similar threats today from those even in the evangelical community who desire to secure the reins of government power and impose their narrow view of biblical doctrine, even though we may agree with much of it, but narrow view on the rest of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, like the Dominionist movement wants to do, who believe they are called to occupy the reins of power until Jesus returns to, to reign over this. Is this the same kind of thing that could come up where they unify the reins of government and other power, and then suddenly the rest of us are on the outside looking in if we have some disagreements on doctrinal matters? Well, I suppose it could be. I mean, I, I, in all honesty, I haven't really studied the Dominionists. I know generally what Dominion theology is. But if that were you know, some kind of an ambition that they're following, I would be willing to bet that all of the links would take you all the way to Rome. Um, because Re- Rome really has had the you know ancient ambition of ruling the world because the popes have declared for you know over a thousand years that they are the representation of God himself on earth that they are the vice regent of Christ and that Christ is the king of kings therefore the pope you know when he's crowned with the triple tiara that triple tiara symbolizes you know there's like three crowns on his mitre and the three crowns symbolize his authority in heaven. In other words, he can put you into heaven if he wants. His authority on earth, that he has the power to depose heretical kings, any king that does not obey him, he can overthrow that king's authority and mm-hmm. put him off the throne, just like God did with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up in pride, and so God put him down, right? Mm-hmm. Humbled him and brought him back when he wanted to. The popes claim the same authority. Uh, and the third crown symbolizes the Pope's authority in hell. He can put you in hell if you don't obey him through excommunication, et cetera, and so on. Um, and so, and this this has been the belief and the, the declarations of the papacy, and we give a whole variety of them uh, in the film just to show people, because I think Protestants in the modern world are painfully ignorant of what official Roman Catholic doctrine really is. Uh, and so when they when when they speak approvingly of the Pope, they don't have any idea of what they are laying hands of approval on, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but the declarations from the papacy make Barack Obama, you know, look like a you know mm-hmm. a, a fundamentalist King James Bible thumping you know mm-hmm. church right. Uh, right. by comparison. I mean, Obama's right. a conservative. Compared to, you know, if you're going to compare the declarations from the Pope, right? Uh, and so we we try to educate people about that and to make people aware that the papacy has never refuted the claims, the extreme claims that you know the Pope holds the place of God upon earth, that you cannot be saved 
unless you're in submission to him, okay, and that he holds all the power that Christ himself holds. But now, uh, the th this is a Go lesson. Ahead. This is a lesson, though, I see today. Not not only for for monitoring who still has those goals, but as I mentioned before, we have a movement even within the evangelical circles that desires to take the same kind of power that Constantine had uh, in well-meaning over society. You know, bring it back to Christian ideals by law. And if you study dominionism, you'll find that's exactly what they want to do. Uh, if you read Gary North and some of the other writers in dominionism, they say that they're going to get rid of the um, the dis the disguise or I'm, I'm trying to remember the same word the the, the facade of uh, religious liberty that that's that's their claim is once they get mm. control in their own writings they want to get rid of this uh, mistaken idea of, of religious liberty in our country so uh, you know you know C S Lewis was asked to run uh, as as one of the heads in a Christian political party and he refused to do that because he knew how Christians were and how we have difference of beliefs and things like this, and that he could end up being on the outside looking in of a group that he was already involved in, you know, early and then it's Genesis, and find out later that, you know, you, you don't fit in with everybody else in time. So to, to me, this is a lesson historically we can learn about today, whether it's from the Roman Catholic Church or even in their evangelical camp. When people want to grab the reins of of uh, civil power as well as religious power, or have even any kind of religious power per se over fellow believers, that that this even they they may look like they're wanting to do you a favor, but give it time, and it's going to cause a lot of pain and suffering for a lot of people. You, you know, many perceive that the Protestant movement was a reactionary response to the long lineage of Roman Catholic apostolic tradition. In other words, it just popped up as a as a reaction to it. However, you and others, as I understand it, report that there is an unbroken chain of Christian adherence to biblical doctrines, such as grace through faith, the preeminence of the Bible and its authority, all the way back to the days of the apostles. How, how can we know which claim is true? Well, I think you have to you have to kind of do what Alexander Hislop did in his book, The Two Babylons, where he's uh, tracing the history of the papacy. You start by looking at Roman Catholicism. Here you've got this guy, he's called the Pope, he's big hat and these long robes and he lives in a place called the Vatican all right now you got these nuns walking around okay and and they're they're continually with these long habits and they're called nuns and then you have cardinals right and then you've you've got the Vatican and uh, you've got rosaries and you've got the veneration of Mary and prayers to the saints and all this other kind of stuff then you go into the Bible and you read the Bible. Now, I was raised Catholic, so this happened to me when I was a teenager. You read the Bible, and you start in Genesis, you get through the book of Revelation, and there's absolutely no mention of these elements. There is no Pope in the Bible. You know, there's no Vatican. Uh, Jesus didn't live at the Vatican. Peter didn't live in the Vatican. None of this stuff is in the Bible. So the obvious question is, where does it come from? It has to come from somewhere. Uh, and that's when we go into the history books and we find that where all this stuff began, really, is in the 4th century with Constantine the Great. That that's where the blending of Christianity and the pagan practices of Rome, that's where that began to happen. And uh, so then, the, then you ask another question. All right, did all of the Christians just completely lose 
you know, were they all deceived by this? Right. Did anyone recognize? They go along. And the truth is, yeah, the truth is they did. In fact, if you get the book by Adrian Hilton uh, called the, uh, the Principality and Power of Europe, he does give a brief history of the church. Uh, and we mentioned the book in our film. But anyway, he talks about how the Christians in the fourth century who recognized that this marriage of the church and the state with Constantine, that this was contrary to the commandment of God. They knew Constantine. They knew that while he had, he was uh, somewhat favorable toward Christianity, him making himself the head of the church as he did when he was a pagan. I mean, Constantine... Mm -hmm. You know, when you see those statues of Constantine with his head and this kind of thing, they're these gigantic statues. But he is dressed up as the sun god, Saul Invictus. And mm. uh, there are histories of him that claim his famous battle at Milvan Bridge, where he saw a cross emblazoned on the sun. Mm -hmm. In some ancient coins, he attributes the victory not to Christ, but to Saul Invictus. And some people believe that he thought that Saul, the sun god, and Christ were one thing. Well, let me make sure okay. I understand, though. It, w w what I was implying is many people think the Catholic Church was the church in total, and that right. out of it broke this offshoot of the Protestant Church. What I right. understand from your work and others is that there were two parallel paths. There was this really dominant, well-funded Roman Catholic-based right. strain, but then you have a continuous strain back from pre-Constantine, back to the Apostles, of people who didn't buy into that, uh, that maintain this belief system and God's Word at the same time. Mm -hmm. Am I correct with that? Is there significant evidence oh, to suggest that that's true? Oh, sure, true? sure, sure. But, but, uh, but, but again, the, the, the way to uncover that history, I think, is to ask these questions that I'm, that I'm posing. But if you wanted to find books, I mean, the book that we mentioned in the film, The Pilgrim Church by E.H. Broadbent, tracks a lot of these movements all the way back to the second century. The ancient Waldenses, who were also called the Vaudois, what happened was when Constantine came to power, many of the believers who would not be a part of his system fled into uh, northern Italy and what would become the south of France, into those regions, okay, into the Alpine valleys as they're known. Uh, and they, they, they fled, if you will, into the mountains. That's where many of them lived, and they were protected there. And it seems, from the histories that I've read, that they were following uh, the commandment of Christ. You said, mm -hmm. you know, when you see the abomination of desolation, you know, then, you know, flee, <laughs> and mm -hmm. flee to the mountains and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they did. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom Bionic. Come. And we don't have much time. Right, Any thoughts go. of his discussion so far? Not in the last, not, not that I can cover in five seconds. Okay. Well, um, you're going to hear some pretty gotta, dude, strong go. words you're, coming up. Yeah. Well, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us here at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week 
during the radio broadcast. See you hustle, Millie. I know, like go. Five whole seconds. No, quick, faster. Go, 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 go. Come back tomorrow for the next segment with Chris Pinto. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, big fan of the Pilgrim Church, Bionic. Hey, that's a good memory there. Yep. Well, we're it's actually written right in front of me. Oh, well, that probably helps. Uh, this week we're talking to Chris Pinto, who is the founder of Adelman Films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure most of you have heard him in his prior mm-hmm. appearances. He's also the writer and producer of a new documentary out called A Lamp in the Dark. Mm-hmm. And we're talking this week about the historical and continuing battle to protect God's word and its hidden impact on world history and Christianity today. Now, most people would long now, the Roman Catholics would probably charge him of being a Manichaean, but uh, I think that uh, he's got a lot of good stuff to say, and he's not. And you mostly do like Sabbatean charges, right? Yeah, I'm more of a Sabbatean yeah. than a Manichaean. Y'all charge. are probably like me, don't know what they're talking about. But uh, Chris Pinto is going to teach you some things now, and then we'll come back and wrap it up here at Future Quick. And there they developed communities that are well documented. Uh, and it's not just modern books like uh, Adrian Hilton's and E.H. Broadbent. You find Protestant historians going back a thousand years, all through the Reformation. Uh, you have famous poets like John Milton. When a certain massacre had happened of the ancient Waldenses uh, in the 1600s, Milton uh, wrote a poem called On the Late Massacre at Piedmont, uh, which is where mm-hmm. this massacre had happened of the Waldenses. And in it says, uh, Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints, who kept thy truths of old when all our fathers worshipped stocks and stones. And it's a reference to the idolatry of Rome. Mm -hmm. In other words, these people, the ancient Waldenses, they kept the truth of the gospel. They preserved it. They held on to the word of God, and they kept the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints when all the rest of Europe turned to this idolatry, this idolatrous system that began in the days of Constantine. You see what I'm saying? That was the understanding Mm -hmm. of all of your Protestant historians going back to even before the time of the Reformation. You find this with John Wycliffe, with Jan Hus, with uh, Jerome of Prague. Uh, you, you can find writings, but of course it's not in our mainstream history books. Mm-hmm. These things have been removed, and I believe to some extent covered up. But, but the 400s, 500s, 600s, all, all through that era as well, well before the Reformation, there was still this, this thriving group. Sure. You have, you have a, they're, they're known by a variety of names. You have the Pollicans, you have the, the Bogomils, you have the Waldenses, the Albigenses, the Cathars, and of course... You, if you go and you do like a, what I would call a surface-level investigation of them, they are often accused of being Manichaean, dualists, or Gnostics, and this kind of thing. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because I read about that a lot, uh, that these groups like the Albigenses and Waldenses uh, are, in fact, the Cathars are particularly talked about being Gnostic-like heretics. What's the real story right. on this matter? Well, uh, there are a variety of ancient historians Uh, or Protestant historians, I I will say, going back to the Middle Ages and before, uh, who all testified that the the charge of Manichaeanism, and in fact, I had a whole segment worked up on this, a cut just for the sake of time, um, but that the the accusation of Manichaeanism 
was a false accusation engineered by Rome, okay, to try and justify hunting down and really mass murdering these people uh, for centuries. And so they wanted to create arguments that they were heretics. It's important to remember that Martin Luther, for example, was accused of being a Manichaean by the Inquisitors. Uh, but when you study uh, Jan Hus, John Wick, and Luther, and we know from their writings what they believed, um, they were all accused of resurrecting the, quote, heresies of the Albigenses and the Waldenses, okay, and that their teachings were identical. Well, anybody who knows Luther's writings or, or Wycliffe's teaching and so on, these guys were not Manichaeans, obviously, and they didn't believe in Gnostic dualism and so on. And then when you go and you read the ancient testimonies of the Waldenses and uh, the other groups and what they preached and what they had to say, you know, they clearly were not Gnostics. They were Bible-believing Christians. Um, and they believed that their faith was to be based solely on the teaching of the Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's why, ultimately, Rome outlawed the Bible. Rome had outlawed the Bible long before the Reformation, um, but it was because these groups would only cling to the Scripture. And so the, 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 uh, the teaching during the Reform of sola scriptura, only the Scripture, that you know, we as Christians take for granted today, you know, that if it's not mm -hmm. in the Bible, we shouldn't adopt it as a doctrine and so on. That was because of the ancient Albigenses and Waldenses. Mm -hmm. And all the inquisitors said of them, if you go and do the extensive history, they all said of them that when you went into their towns and their villages and so on, their children, their people, their tradesmen, the common, you know, the commoners that were there, from the least to the greatest, they knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They could quote the entire New Testament word for word. Uh, and they could quote a great part of the Old Testament. And the inquisitors would say in their frustration, you know, they, they despise the decretals of Rome. They won't listen to the traditions of the churches. You know, they, they reject the councils, et cetera, and so on. They will only hear the words of the scripture. That was what was said of them mm -hmm. by their enemies. Mm -hmm. uh, and so from there, the, the inquisitors began to call the Bible the paper pope of the Protestants. In other words, the, the Catholics, they obey the Pope in Rome, whatever the Pope tells them to do. Uh, but these, these, these protesters, you know, that's where the word Protestant comes from. Uh, they'll only obey the Bible. That's their problem. Don't you wish that was true today in our churches? Oh, sure. Yeah. That people knew it backwards and forwards, and all they would do was just do what they heard in the Word of God? I'm, I'm afraid if you, if you had a lot of them before the Inquisitors now, they would recite a lot of self-help books. And a lot of Christian feel-good books they got from the library, but when you got to ask them scripture, it'd be sort of helpless to quote some of that. Even even text about salvation and things like that, and the average person in the pew, I think, would be hard pressed to recite some of those. Well, that practice of teaching children—I mean, literally—that's what they did. This is what this is where Rome. Uh, like the Dominicans initially, who who launched the Inquisition, they Dominic. Uh, went out and imitated he went he went along the south of France and northern Italy and he discovered these communities and he saw that oh my gosh they know the bible so well well what we need to do and he would try to debate with them but they just knew the scriptures too well so he went and he started his own order of preachers to try and combat them and so he started his own preaching schools in imitation of what they were doing now Whoa. this i think is 
This, I think, is very important because when you get into the full-blown Reformation and then Rome launches a counter-Reformation with the Jesuit order, the Jesuits specifically focused on education and they knew that the thing that they had to do was to get people away from the Bible, that the only way Rome could prevail is to get the Bible out of the hands of children and quit teaching them the Word of God. That was the only hope Rome had. But as long as kids were reading the Bible and they were growing up with the Word of God, they would never embrace uh, the doctrines of Rome. They would never mm. embrace the Pope. They would never embrace Catholicism or submit to it. Well, let, let, let mm. me ask you, why, why did the Roman Catholics at the time find the doctrine of transubstantiation to be so important as to make it the main charge of heresy amongst the Reformers? You know, that's a good question. The uh, You know, that debate is, as we talk about, that was the deadliest doctrine of the Dark Ages. That was the, the peculiar doctrine, as J.A. Wiley calls it in his, uh, in his writings. Uh, he was a 19th century Protestant author. But anyway, um, that doctrine, the, the doctrine that says in the Catholic Mass, and the Catholic Church believes this to this day, when the priest you know, holds up the, uh, you know, the elements, the, the wafer and the, the wine, and speaks the certain words, that it becomes literally, physically, the actual body and blood of Christ. And that if you do not believe that in the Middle Ages, you were put to death. Uh, now, why that was, you know, the issue, and you had, you had to bow to this wafer. You had to bow down and worship it as God, as Christ himself in the flesh. And you weren't supposed to let the wafer fall on the ground, and they would take the wafer. They still do. You can go look this up online. But when after the priest has blessed the wafer and made it into Christ, summoned Christ out of heaven, and he becomes manifest now in this wafer, they take it and they put it in something called a tabernacle, okay? And then they put that tabernacle away in like a closet or something. Uh, why? Because they believe it's the real presence of Christ. Well, and, and it's they can literally put Jesus in a box. Exactly. Because it shows that they can conjure him at their will, and he has to do their bidding rather than him being the head of the church. You know, you say that, you say that, and you don't, I don't think you know how right you are. There are quotes, <coughs> excuse me, from priests in the Middle Ages where they have said things <coughs> such as that a priest, a Catholic priest, they, this is, I'm going to paraphrase this quote, that a Catholic priest is even greater than the Blessed Virgin Mary. Why? because Mary only brought Christ into the world one time, whereas a Catholic priest summons him over and over and over again every day in the Mass. Okay, that is a paraphrased quote. Wow. It's uh, really a mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, people don't realize just how diabolical the official writings and doctrines of Rome are. And why the reformers fought so hard against it. Why would these people be willing to be tortured and beaten and killed and burned at the stake uh, over these issues? Clearly, they had an understanding about them. Uh, they believed that it was a betrayal of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, not to reject these things. Now, now uh, they, they could. I assume this came back from their roots because the Chaldean priests 
predecessors of theirs would conjure the other gods as well, right? I mean, they were the mediators to actually bring the other gods in their midst. So wasn't this, and they transubstantiated basically. So wasn't this just a further extension of that behavior in their role? Well, certainly it's, uh, you know, Alexander Hislop and others would argue that it, you know, it, it's a pagan origin, uh, exactly where they're getting it from, you know, that I couldn't, I think that's a pretty good guess, but, uh, uh, but of course they're going to point to the scripture where Jesus says, this is my body, you know, mm-hmm. that's the one. And, uh, and they say that when he says, this is my body, that means it's his real body. Um, of course, Jesus goes on to say, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Well, and except that was his real body that was holding it. His real right. body was, was not the wafer, it was the one holding the wafer. If, 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 you, if you just saw a, a, a corporal spirit or something invisible but a wafer sitting on a table said, this is my body, I might understand it. But he was standing there physically in front of them. So... I I don't understand how that could be taken literally when, in fact, you see the physical alternative to the wafer standing in front of the apostles. Well, it was uh, it's really a fascinating study to mm-hmm. see how deadly a doctrine uh, that mm-hmm. was during but, that time. But that was the main one they would charge, regardless of what they taught about the Bible or other kind of things about the Pope. That was the main one they wanted to hang them on as justification for severe punishment or, or death, correct? Absolutely. And, I mean, it was, it was such an issue. It was such an issue for Rome. Rome was putting the saints to death over it. And the Reformers, as a result, uh, one, considered it idolatry, you know, for somebody to bow to this wafer as though it were God was a form of idolatry. That it's mm-hmm. it's not no, it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And if you bow to that, then you're you're bowing to an idol, uh, not to the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that the Mass they they all wrote, if you read their writings, that the Catholic Mass was a blasphemous ceremony. That was their view. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, of course what's very interesting, if if I could say they would point to two things, I think, on that. If you read John chapter one you know, Jesus in the New Testament refers to his body as a temple. Okay? And in the in John chapter one, it's where it says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there could be translated tabernacled. Okay, the word mm-hmm. was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And in the book of Revelation, where they talk about how uh they they're talking about Antichrist, the beast, and so on, and how they blasphemed the tabernacle of God. Okay? Mm-hmm. If you read the Reformers' writings, the impression that they give you is that they as they believe that passage, blaspheming the tabernacle of God, that that was the Mass. Mm-hmm. That, that but the tabernacle of God is the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that 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 it's blasphemy to say that you can summon Christ out of heaven, and make him into this wafer, okay? And that he's coming at your bidding, mm-hmm. you know, and that he's got to come every day and submit to you. And even though the Bible says that he died once for all, and that uh, and that beyond his one sacrifice there is no more offering for sin, nevertheless the Mass refutes that. 
Mm-hmm. It says, no, he's got to come and die every single day over and over and over again in the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And that's what they believe was blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, the, the fall of Constantinople, which you talk about in your documentary, and the, the, the Eastern Holy Roman Empire itself was a critical turning point in history when it fell. And some say even the end of the Middle Ages uh, and the start of the dominance of Islam in, in that part of Asia. However, while much of that event was very tragic for Christians, there is a silver lining to this event that you allude to. What such positive event did you talk about as a result of the fall of Constantinople? Well, that is where uh, our knowledge of uh, really uh, the Greek language and certainly the Greek manuscripts, the Greek New Testament, came from the eastern leg of the Roman Empire into the west, into Europe. Uh, and that's the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Uh, and all of these, uh, because Constantinople now, which would have been founded by Constantine the Great in the 4th century, uh, that eastern part of the empire split off and became its own, uh, became its own kingdom. And they continued for centuries now to read, write, and speak Koine Greek in that culture. It was a very thriving culture. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of artisans and architects and, you know, very well developed. And when it fell, it was, you know, a stunning blow uh, to, to all of Europe. They just couldn't believe it happened. But what happened as a result was all of these scholars and teachers and architects and so on fled and they came into Europe, and they brought with them thousands of Greek uh, manuscripts and so on. And many of those manuscripts were the uh, the, the New Testament uh, writings that had been handed down for centuries. And so these uh, scholars began to teach in the universities of Europe, and they were teaching Greek. And so now the, the Europeans who had uh, been reading the scriptures in Latin uh, almost exclusively, especially the New Testament. Here they are getting these Greek manuscripts, and they're recognizing, you know, in key phrases and words and so on, that the very specific and detailed nature of Koine Greek uh, gave them a, a dramatically, you know, new understanding of what Christianity was all about. Uh, and of course, one of the first to begin to realize that was Erasmus of Rotterdam. Uh, and Erasmus uh, was one of the first to learn Greek and to really become proficient at it. Uh, he learned it at the University of Paris from a guy named George Hermonymus, who had come from this all of Constantinople. And then he went and he lived in uh, northern Italy for about three years in a Byzantine community with other Greek scholars and committed himself to speak nothing but Greek for about three years. Wow. And became, yeah became very expert in the language, and he was learning it from these are the guys who brought Greek to the Western world. The only reason you and I know anything about Greek today is because of the fall of Constantinople. You know, I find it curious, though, that it, it reminds me in the, Old Te- in the New Testament in Acts about the persecution that swept through Jerusalem and how that was a stimulus or a catalyst to spread the gospel and believers around the world. Uh, you know, they were supposed to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Evidently, they weren't going fast enough. And God permitted persecution to be a means to get people out there and spread the word. 
and I wonder if this was not also part of God's plan too, since they had not been spreading this information out to the ends of the earth uh, in, in these original languages. It took something like this to, uh, to force people to flee with that information. Do you think God sometimes works that way? Oh, I certainly think so. I mean, persecution uh, has has always been a has always resulted in in the the spreading of the faith uh, of Christianity. I mean, it's uh, uh, it, it, again, as you said, from the first century, but you find it through the Reformation. Every time people were burned at the stake or persecuted and so on, it would convict many others. You know, one death. Uh, would convict hundreds or even thousands more in the aftermath, uh, and they would mm. become strengthened in their resolve uh, to repent of whatever they were guilty of and, and really trust the Lord, um, because they could see that, you know, as as the Scripture says, all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, and that, you know, uh, ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake, the Lord said. And so when, as persecution was happening in the Middle Ages, those words uh, were became very alive uh, for believers, in you know, during that time. And part of the reason I wanted to make this film is, you know, we've talked about, I know, in, in previous shows and, and in privately, um, what many Christians see coming, and that is persecution for the church here in America and in different parts of the world, where, you know, where we're not used to persecution. Many people are predicting that persecution is coming. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to make a lamp in the dark is to remind our brethren of what the saints have been through for the last, mm-hmm. you know, 2,000 years right. uh, that the Lord told us we would suffer. And that God is in control and he can work all things for good. Amen. To, to those who love mm-hmm. him and call according to his purpose. Amen. Uh, well, you know, it also reminds me, too, that um, if the Lord has called us to do something, whether it's to spread the gospel in the other part of the earth or to use a talent that we have or something that he's given us a task to do, woe be to us if we don't get on with it. If we have something that can benefit the rest of the body of Christ or, or our, our neighbors or people on the other side of the earth and we, we sit there and we... We dig a hole in the ground and put our talent in there. Um, God sometimes has to use rash methods, like to be giant able, whales, to, like giant whales, exactly, <laughs> to, to to get his his uh, way done. Yeah. Uh, Thomas More is uh, known in the public as this heroic uh, man for all seasons who was known to have given his life uh, rather than compromise his religious convictions. However, you briefly shed light on his religious activities that few people knew about. Can you give us a little inkling of that? Oh, sure. First, let me say I was raised Catholic. Two, before I became a born-again believer, uh, I remember watching the film A Man for All Seasons with Paul Schofield, who gives a brilliant performance. And in the film, he really does come across as this very noble guy. And I think in some ways, if you read his writings, his real writings, you know, Moore was a very eloquent man, but he had a very dark side uh, when it came to his defense of the Pope and the Church of Rome. And he uh, he was a he was the chief persecutor of William Tyndale. Tyndale was the first man to actually translate the Bible, the New Testament, from Greek into uh, English. And after he you know when he did this. 
uh, he came under sharp persecution because Catholic was, or, or England rather, was still a Roman Catholic country. And Sir Thomas More was the guy who was sending out spies and agents and trying to find Tyndale. And he had a number of his uh, followers uh, arrested who had Tyndale's Bibles and were following his teachings and so on. And uh, More had them tortured and had several of them burned at the stake. In fact, he was so severe, you know, in his own writings. He had written like nine books, nine volumes, more than a thousand pages of, uh, of just vitriol against William Tyndale. You know, called him a hellhound, you know, in the kennel of the devil and so on. Uh, called him a beast and all of these other, you know, really derogatory terms. Uh, he had at his home in Chelsea... If you, uh, if you study this from the perspective of the European Institute of Protestant Studies, who over there in England and, and Northern Ireland, they preserve these histories. But they say that Moore, at his home in Chelsea, he had stocks and a whipping tree there that he had installed at his home so that he could bring heretics to his house and put them in the stocks and then torture them, you know, you know beat them to try and mm -hmm. extract you know, heretical information from them. Uh, but he, he was a persecutor, and he was an unrepentant persecutor. He never, you know, he, he never had a, a Saul of Tarsus experience on the road to Damascus and, and did an about-face. Uh, and, in fact, he was so adamant about the authority of the Pope, you know, the authority that the Pope's authority over England as a country, again, going back to the papal claims, uh, that he went to his death, okay, rather than recant of that. Right. Well, <clears throat> that doesn't sound like such an endearing heroic figure to me, but, you know, I can't imagine having a religious leader that a lot of people look up to in our society that would also support torture as well. Thank goodness we live in a society where we don't Indeed. have religious leaders. I was actually thinking that. that support <laughs> torture. I was actually thinking, you know, he mentioned about the stocks and the whipping post and uh -huh. stuff, and I was just thinking about all those people working outside the Futurequake compound to put in the, well, put in the same thing. You that's know? true. They intimidate us a little yeah. bit outside yeah. when we see that. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to think... across the neck as we walk by. I don't know. Did you hire them? <laughs> well, I'm just glad to find that we're sophisticated evangelicals now, and yeah. we're, we're beyond... Uh, you know, preaching righteousness and supporting torture at the same time. I'm, yeah, that's I'm, very old, very dead. I'm we glad, don't do that. Glad that's in our in our history. We're back at Future Quake with Doctor Future and Tom. One, once Istanbul was Constantinople. Bionic. Istanbul, not Constantinople. Yeah, Istanbul, Constantinople. Yeah, Mrs. Future loves that song too. Me too. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, that was an interesting discussion there mm -hmm. uh, that we've had on this segment. Uh, transubstantiation, a lot of significance. Indeed. When you really look into what people mean by it. Yeah. And yeah. why it is such a big deal. Spooky, isn't it? It's a big deal to some people, evidently. Yeah. And you know somebody else who's a big deal is our friend Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. 
Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. I, was, I thought you were going to say he transubstantiated right out of the closet to say all that. No, didn't think of that. But we do need to go. Until tomorrow, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, not a big fan of Mystery Babylon, Bionic. That's good, because I got rid of the, the host that was the fan of Mystery Babylon. They're, they're going from here. Awesome. But somebody we do have is Chris Pinto with us, who is mm-hmm. the founder of Adullam Films and writer and producer of A Lamp in the Dark. And we're talking this week about the historical and continuing battle to protect God's Word and its hidden impact on world history and Christianity today, Yeah. which is the basic theme of the documentary. There you go. Let's, let's just go to that. Uh, very deep discussion. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll get out of your way. Uh, here's Chris Pinto, and we'll be right back to wrap it up here on Future Quake. Based upon the notes in in the commentaries that were written in the Geneva Bible, which you spend a lot of time talking about, uh, yeah. the, the Reformers Bible, who did the Reformers think that Mystery Babylon was and who the Antichrist was? Well, Mystery Babylon, I mean, to a man, uh, in fact, I don't find any variance whatsoever. Um, But for well over, you know, for 1,500, 1,700 years um, going back, they all believed that Mystery Babylon the Great in Revelation chapter 17, you know, the woman clad in purple and scarlet who sits upon seven hills was undoubtedly Rome. Uh, In fact, even the Jesuit priests who did the Dewey Reams Bible uh, in the Middle Ages, in their footnotes, admitted that Rome uh, is Mystery Babylon. Uh, but they insist that it was pagan Rome during the time of Nero. Uh, and they, you know, they reject the idea that it was the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, all of the reformers believed that, it, and certainly the Geneva Bible translators, believe that Rome is that woman, you know, the, the great whore, as she's called, that has a cup in her hand and she's drunken with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. Uh, and that was very fitting for a fitting description for Rome because you've got all of these testimonies of the great massacres uh, that had been conducted by papal armies uh, according to, um, oh gosh, the, uh, the history of Romanism by John Dowling in the 19th century. Dowling says that According to the most credible historians up to that time, uh, at least you know more than 50 million people had been slaughtered through the Inquisition period, through that era. Um, and this is, of course, the the you know during a time when they didn't have weapons of mass destruction. You know they didn't have uh, mm-hmm, the, right. the gas chambers that Hitler in Nazi Germany. So they're killing people with a sword and yeah. torture instruments. and Had to do it the hard away. way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, and not only that, but when you read about these massacres, like the, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and others, the idea of the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and martyrs is a very fitting depiction of Rome because the popes, when these massacres would happen, would go and have this grand celebration 
in Rome, you know, and they would have the cannons fire and they would have people singing, you know, like angelic verses. And then they would march, do a big march through the street in their costumes and go and have a celebratory mass to celebrate the slaughter of the heretics, uh, you know, and the destruction of their Bibles and so on. Um, and and it was it was obvious that there was a kind of spiritual drunkenness mm-hmm. uh, to this behavior. Well, that sounds just like Nero. Didn't he also have big parties that were lit by the uh, fire of the burning Christians on the crosses? Sir, from what I from what I understand, yes. Wow. So so, so us Christians, they say we don't know how to party. <laughs> uh, <laughs> evidently, we know how to create a party. It's just not the kind we prefer. Yeah. Uh, no, being at, when they say uh, we're going to have them over for dinner, and you know that's not, right, not, not what we intended. Yeah. Okay. Now, now as far as the Antichrist goes, if I understand right, their general thinking was the Antichrist was almost like an office, that whoever was the sitting pope at the time fulfilled that office of Antichrist. Am I am I close to what their thinking was? Well, I, uh, yes, uh, very close. In fact, uh, it is. You can find it in the writings of John Wycliffe. But it, it actually predates Wycliffe. Uh, it, it, but w- according to Wycliffe, Wycliffe uh, formalized it. We quoted we quote him. But he goes to Matthew chapter 24, and all of the reformers held this view. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, where um, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the, te- the temple, and his disciples come to him and say, uh, "Lord, tell us when you know when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming." and of the end of the age, the end of the world. And Jesus answered them, saying, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now they believed that the many who come in the name of Jesus and say, quote, I am Christ, are the popes. That the popes are not one, you know, the Antichrist right. is not one man. He is many who come in the name of Jesus now, which I think is interesting because today in in modern in the modern uh, Christian teaching, that verse is often ascribed to New Age gurus, guys like Sai Baba right, and so right, on, who, right. who say that they have the Christ spirit and this kind of thing. The difference is that those guys, they don't come in the name of Jesus. Uh, They don't come saying that they are the representative of Jesus himself. They say that, well, Jesus was a a God, sure, but so am I, and so is this guy and that guy and Buddha and Christian Muhammad and so on, that he was just a man like us, okay, and he he achieved Godhood by opening his understanding and so on. Mm -hmm. But what Jesus is saying is, Many are going to come in my name, in the name of Jesus, saying, quote, I am Christ. Now, uh, now those same passages also say that those people will say, come out in the desert place or in the hidden chamber. He's there. How does that also explain the Pope? Well, that's actually later on in Matthew 24. It's, mm-hmm. it's when he's talking about the tribulation. And he says, uh, uh, and he says, if they say to you, behold, Jesus is here. Or he is there, you know. Do not follow, or you know, behold, he's in the desert, or in the secret chambers. Do not follow him. Do not follow them. Neither go after. Um, and so it it is a and and he talks about how false Christs 
will arise and shall deceive false prophets and false Christs. I would certainly agree that these New Age gurus are false Christs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from the Reformers' perspective, not to debate right, the issue right, too much, right. but from their perspective, uh, they believed, again, that that passage at the beginning of Matthew 24, uh, where he says, Many shall come in my name, saying I am Christ, uh, that that was a reference to the popes. Because mm-hmm. the popes, mm-hmm. their title, Vicarius Christi, literally means another Christ. Mm-hmm. And the popes have all claimed that they have the power and the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Not just some nebulous idea of the Christ or whatever, but no, Jesus Christ, the carpenter, the man who was crucified and died and rose from the dead, we come in his name and we have his authority. So anything that Christ can do, we can do as the Pope, right? Hmm. And so just as Christ holds the keys of heaven and earth, he can put your soul in hell. You know, do not fear him who can destroy the body, but him who has power to cast you into hell. The popes would say, you need to fear us. Right, right. Because we have that power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they all made that claim. And none of them, right up to the present pope, Benedict XVI, none of them have ever refuted those claims. You know, the irony is those same gentlemen were mortal themselves. Hmm. They supposedly had power over heaven and hell, but they couldn't do anything to extend their life one day further. I I don't know if they looked at themselves like pharaohs, who sort of almost saw themselves as God or becoming like something like some exalted amongst everyone else at death, uh, where they had some special status afterwards. But there's certainly nothing they could do for their mortality. Wycliffe said, on that note, John Wycliffe in his writings made mention of that. How, because one of the teachings of the of the the papacy is that no one can really say if they are saved or not. Mm-hmm. Okay, that you can't you you you, you because you're continuing in Catholicism, right. you're always auditioning to get saved. You're right. constantly trying, you know, through your works and so on. And so Wycliffe said, how can this person, meaning the Pope, who, you know, stained with homicide, he says, who knows not whether he is saved or damned, how can he be the head of the church? How can he be the head of Christ's church? It just doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, and so, but, he, but, but again, that's the whole problem mm-hmm. with the Catholic system. Well, it makes it, it's also interesting to think about uh, what they believed about the Pope and Antichrist and the fact that there are discussions that are currently going on. It was just in the news again with uh, Netanyahu and the Roman Catholic Church about taking over more of the operations of the Temple Mount. Really? You mean like the Roman Catholic Church would run the Temple Mount? Yeah, yeah. And uh, there are discussions underway when you think about the the beast coming and doing the, you know, the abomination of desolation in in the temple itself. That is very interesting. Well, I think we need to move on to a a cheerier topic with some cheerier. Can I say one more thing on that? I'm sorry. Sure. One more thing. Pope Benedict XVI this year became, according to the stories, the the reports I read, he was the first pope in history, the first Roman pontiff to visit the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which he did, I think it was back in May. But this year, he is the very first in history to visit the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Hmm. You know, his his name means the glory of the olives. I wonder if he went over to the Mount of Olives. nearby you know we need to move on to a cheerier topic and a cheerier folks so let's talk about 
the Jesuits. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> happy. For many of our listeners who do not know, what was the initial mission of the Jesuits and some of their documented historical activities? Well, I think I'm glad, Jim, I'm glad we're talking about this because I think this is one of the most important topics for uh, for Christians today. The, the 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 Reformation happened, okay, through the Middle Ages. It had been brewing for centuries. Martin Luther, really, when he nailed his 95 thesis uh, on October 31st, 1517, that's considered to this day that's Reformation Day over in Europe. That was like the, the shot heard round the world, mm -hmm. and it launched the Protestant Reformation. But by 1540 now, when you had many, you know, countless thousands or millions that were converting and becoming, you know, Bible-believing Christians, they were getting the Word of God in their hands. The Bible was being translated into German, into English, and other languages, and people were reading it, and they were getting saved. Uh, but they were turning away from Roman Catholicism. And then you had whole countries like England and others that were becoming Protestant. And so Rome needed some kind of new tactic. And along came this guy named uh, Ignatius Loyola, who was a Spanish soldier, and he had been wounded in battle. And then he you know, became a, and he began, when he was recovering, he began reading stories about Catholic saints and he started having visions and all this other kind of stuff. And he uh, went eventually goes to the Pope with this idea of launching a military order of priests that would fight against the Protestant Reformation, and they would launch a counter-Reformation, and that they were going to do, and they were going to commit themselves completely to the Pope. They would be his servants, and uh, they would work to overturn specifically the Protestant Reformation. And so they launched with the Vatican and, and the Pope uh, what was called and is called the Counter-Reformation. And this was an attempt to destroy the work of the Reformers and bring all the converted so-called heretics back into Roman Catholicism and under the authority of the Pope. So this is this was the move, and this of course is. I mean, you can there are whole history books written about this, uh, and it's happening. Um, but Loyola founded that was their overarching objective. But then they had a series of programs, and uh, Loyola began it with the idea that the other Catholic orders had failed. You know, the, the Dominicans who'd been running the Inquisition which was a very frontal assault approach. You know, you grab the heretics, throw them in prison, kill them, burn them at the stake, this kind of thing. So they were too easy with them with the Inquisition. Well, they felt that, that all it was doing, the more they did that, the, the Protestants were just going into the Scripture, reading prophecies about, you know, Antichrist making war against mm -hmm. the saints, the harlot drunk with the blood of the saints, and so on. And they're saying, well, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Mm -hmm. And then people were, were were hearing that, and then they were converting. They were they were coming out of, uh, and then they're going to Revelation 18, where it, the voice cries out against the harlot and says, "Come out of her, my people, lest she be partaker of her sins and receive of her plagues." And they said, "Well, this is the voice of God calling us out of the Catholic Church." 
And so thousands and thousands were converting. Uh, and so uh, the Jesuits recognized that they were going to have to take a different tactic. And so they began uh, their approach through academia uh, by developing schools and universities and colleges, uh, by developing doctrines, histories, counter-histories, counter-doctrines uh, and so on. They developed their own Bible, uh, Bibles uh, and their own manuscripts and so on. And they were determined to become proficient at all of the things that the Protestants were doing. Huh. Because the, the strength of the Protestants was their scholarship. And through their scholarship, they're, they're teaching and translating the Word of God. And that's what's having such a huge impact. Mm-hmm. And so the Jesuits said, look, if we don't confront them at this level, we're going to be able to defeat them. Mm-hmm. And so... That was the whole purpose of developing their Jesuit system of education. Hmm. Well, it also goes to show that for Christians, uh, while we may fear physical persecution, the real greater threat to us is deception and deceptive teaching. And that's why in Scripture, when it talks about the last days, it doesn't talk about, you know, we need to help in wars in a certain part of the world or or we need to... uh, go flee for our lives from persecution. It says we need to look out for deception and deceptive teachings. And it also says we're supposed to get out of Babylon. Those are the real commands in Scripture we see when we enter the last days. So so they're actually taking a page out of that book, it appears to me, and realizing that deception is much more effective in stymieing the work of the church than just brute force persecution. Yeah, certainly. And, I mean, they, you know, you, you've even got... Um quotes, because the, to this day, um, you can go, if you were to go online and look up historical documents, the Jesuits became known, they were notorious deceivers, because they developed a system of, of uh, different philosophies for doing what they did. One of the, probably their most common, most well-known, was the saying, the end justifies the means. And of course, their end was to bring all the world under the power of the popes. So whatever they had to do to achieve that was justifiable in their sight. They'd lie, cheat, steal, commit assassination, poison people, whatever they needed to do, they developed whole systems of philosophy uh, whereby uh, you could tap into somebody's conscience and convince their conscience that what they were doing, no matter how diabolical or how seemingly wrong it was, that it wasn't wrong because it was for the, quote, the greater glory of God, which is one of their phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, so they became very formidable, uh, not just with the frontal assault, because they took over the Inquisition, and they were still persecuting and killing people and burning them at the stake and so on, uh, but they were much more subtle uh, when it came to their academia and their development mm-hmm. of doctrines and different arguments and so on. But but it doesn't seem like doctrine was just their only interest. They were interested no. in political power and world affairs. Even though maybe that 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 also was a was a side effect or byproduct of doctrine. Once you control a country, I'm sure you can control the religion a little bit more. But it seemed like they had a much broader scope and in, in the influence that they wanted to bring back to Rome. Yeah, one of the quotes, in fact, that we use is uh, in the early 1900s um, uh, in the book The Babington Plot. Uh, tells us that the, by by the early 1900s, the Jesuits had been kicked out of 
formally kicked out of some 83 countries. Wow. City, yeah, 83 countries, city-states, and cities for subversive plots against governments. <laughs> because they're, and they were known for the famous. You know, the future Quake show has been described that I way, I know, too. we've been yeah. kicked out of 84, so. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, this is what they were known for, for trying to literally overturn every country in the world to bring it under the power of Rome. See, they would make great dominionists because that's what that's dominionists exactly do in the evangelical world is they try to work the political strings and things to uh, control government. They have groups like the CNP which meet in secret, and they also use secretive means by which to uh, you know, bring about change in government in line with well, their objectives maybe too. Maybe there's something to that. I'm going to mm-hmm. have to... Sorry, I didn't mean to co-op your point there, Chris. I just... Uh, no, just no, not like, at all. It seems like deja vu all over again. That's why I said to you, if I haven't studied the Dominionists, but if you were to study them, I would be willing to bet you would find links. If you looked for them, mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet you would find links that would go all the way to Rome. It sounds like they're reading from the Jesuit playbook, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, now, you know, many have blamed the Jesuits, and I we have not done in... in we we'll we'll need to do a show story, on this because on the Jesuits. We, we've blamed just about everybody else yeah. just for, for the evils of the world. We've gone yeah. through a lot of them, but we really haven't parked at the Jesuits and, and explored this. Because, honestly, you bring some material up in your documentary that I want our listeners to, to get and watch that uh, is shocking. Uh, our founding fathers of our nation knew how evil they were and knew what a threat to our country they were and wrote about it very explicitly in there. But, you know, many have blamed the Jesuits, if we really go deep into this, for virtually every single nefarious action that occurs in the world, you know, through this possibility of murky actions that they're doing behind the scenes. Now, there are some people worldwide who claim they were Jesuits or raised in Jesuit schools that serve as professors or academic researchers and teaching institutions. Do you think that all of them are actively participating in this cabal uh, to put all humanity under Rome's tyranny? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say all of them. I mean, it's, it's almost like uh, like if you talk about masonry, uh, not necessarily all masons know the full scope of what masonry is about. Right. I think the same is probably true of the Jesuit order. I don't think they all, and, yeah. and I don't think that everybody that goes through a Jesuit school, and there's a number of them, you know, like Georgetown University, uh, Fordham University, Boston College, Loyola, anything named Loyola, is named after Ignatius Loyola. Um, but I don't think that all the students that come through those universities necessarily know, uh, uh, you know, what, what the grand scheme of the Jesuit order is. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but certainly they have continued right up to this present day uh, through the education system. And they are, if you study, just if you read any kind of press releases from the Vatican, Bear in mind that people have said for a couple of hundred years that the Jesuits really control the Vatican. Um, and uh, some even argue that the Jesuit general, who's the black pope, is the one who really tells the, the pope in white, right. you know, the pope, what to do. Now, he's called uh, the black pope, the leader of the Jesuits. Is That's just because he's sort of in the shadows, is it? Because well, because he wears black, uh, he's called the Black Pope because he has this tremendous power uh, that is said to exceed even, you know, the the White Pope, the one who's wearing the white uh, robes and so on. Right. 
but but again, and there are whole books that are written to that effect. Um, wow. Do you think that you know because there there have been so many coups, other kind of things in countries around the world where Jesuits have have been alleged to have a, a role in, in running. Do you think they actually have meetings and things like that now where they sort of lay these strategies out, at least some some set of these leaders? It it wouldn't surprise me. I I certainly believe that they do. Here's something to consider because I know that you guys have studied the New World Order. Things pertaining to we've heard, we've heard of it. Who? Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but remember, Adam Weissant, okay, who mm-hmm. founded the Bavarian Illuminati that launched this world revolutionary movement. Adam Weissant was a professor of canon law at the Jesuit University of Ingolstadt in Bavaria. Okay, there are other uh, writers who allege that most, if not all of the leaders of the French Revolution that was attributed to the Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati, that most, if not all, of the leaders were either Jesuits or they were trained by Jesuits. Uh, Guys like Voltaire, Voltaire, who's the famous French writer, was trained by Jesuit priests. Um, And he was an enemy of Christianity, wasn't he not? Right, but... Well, uh, in his writings, but it's very interesting, right. even though he spoke in a very sarcastic manner about Christianity, it said historically that he always uh, spoke fondly of his Jesuit masters, teachers, huh. and so on. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And so one of the things that the Jesuits are known for, if you read the book um, oh, Rulers of Evil by F. Tupper Sasi, he says that that they were the first to translate Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Do you refer to oh, the Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, they had sent, uh, Ignatius Loyola had sent Francis Xavier to China as the famous missionary, right? And so they'd been in China for almost 500 years. And, uh, and so there they discover these writings of Sun Tzu. They translate them, and then they began to de- develop Sun Tzu's philosophy, and part of his philosophy was that all warfare is based on deception, mm-hmm. right. and that to defeat your enemy, you have to be able to deceive him. We're back here at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, not a warrior priest, or a warrior poet, or a warrior anything. <laughs> Bionic. Glad you specified that. <laughs> yeah. Did you know all that about Thomas More? No, more. I, I mean he's seen as this really great guy, you know. I, I had not really heard of him to be honest until today. Really? I I thought Thomas More paints or something. Yeah, yeah, maybe. covers the earth. Yep. Yeah, no, he he's the man for all seasons. He was the guy who was staying on his commitments. They didn't talk about in the in the musicals and stuff about his torture. Torturing everybody, big old torture chambers. Thomas More. Hey, won't you record that and we'll play that on our show? Okay. Merv, would you come in also and share with us how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. 
Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Do we got to go? Okay. Okay. Come back tomorrow. But until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, a little too nutty bionic. You are too nutty. You mean just because you were singing about torture in our last show? Torturing, torturing. Ladies and gentlemen, Everybody's if you know any other Christian show who actually sings about torture, let us know. Of course, a lot of them praise it, but I mean actually sing about it. Yeah, well, I'm doing it because it's so ridiculous that a Christian would praise torture. Yeah, you know. well, thank goodness it doesn't happen today. Yeah. But we need to get on to Chris Pinto, yes. who is the founder of Adullam Films and writer and producer of a new documentary called Lamp of the Dark, talking about the historical and continuing battle to protect God's Word and its hidden impact on world history and Christianity today. Got to go. Come back uh, to wrap it up here on Future Quake. Uh, and then, of course, the, the Jesuits, their, their reputation, you know, prior to the 20th century, if you read anything about them prior to 1901, it was openly stated by all that they were the great deceivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they were synonymous with deception, lies, uh, and in fact, there are certain writings. You know, there I've I've been searching through historical documents at times, and if anything is ever written by Jesuit prior to the 20th century, there's always a question mark on it. And somebody somebody will say like, not a conspiracy writer now, like somebody right. who just handles ancient documents. They'll say this could be a forgery created by the Jesuits to promote their idea of blah 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 blah. Wow! But there's always a question that it was a forgery. So counterfeiting was a big part of their business. Oh yeah. Just like 1984 yeah. when they would go back and rewrite the history books. Yep. Exactly. Hmm. Very fascinating. There's a 19th century historian, I can't remember, there's a famous historian who said that the wellspring of knowledge throughout the whole world had been corrupted by Jesuitism. That just to get an accurate understanding of history, and this guy's writing in like the 1850s, to get an accurate understanding of history is so difficult because the Jesuits had corrupted. Uh, so many books, so many histories, so many writings, and so on, because they were they were trying to counter, and this is going on through the late 19th and into the 20th century. You read the writings of Albert Close and the uh, the Protestant Truth Society. He's warning about what the the Vatican and the Jesuits were doing in England, that they were trying to rewrite all the history books of the world, uh, in and English history, the history of King James, Queen Elizabeth. Charles I, all these middle age middle ages monarchs um, because they they wanted to try and erase the history of Rome's treachery sure okay and all of her diabolical dealings and so on you know we were we were asking you earlier about uh, and it'd be interesting if you ever come across information about any kind of suspicions of infiltration in groups like the family. Uh, the Council on National Policy or other parts of the religious right. Future quake? Uh, I hope not. <laughs> Unless Pyro yeah. has gone over to He's Jesuits. The, I saw him wearing that Jesuit <clears throat> ring. That, and the cape. Yeah. But the um, what it makes me wonder is even unexpected groups like the New Age movement, do you suspect they've also wormed their ways into groups like this? 
to somehow prepare them for associations? Well, uh, there's a number of ways to answer. I would overall, I would say yes, probably. Um, but for example, the the man, according to Dave Hunt and Tom McMahon in their book, The Seduction of Christianity, the the man who was known as quote the father of the New Age movement was a Jesuit priest named Teilhard de Chardin. Mm-hmm. Okay, who was the world famous paleontologist who had worked on the Piltdown Man discovery, Charles Dawson, Mm -hmm. that turned out to be a hoax later on. Uh, But, of course, during the 40 years that it was accepted as the missing link, Tayar went and wrote extensively about evolution and that now that evolution has been proved, he said, uh, it is a, a, a curve that every line must follow a hypothesis to which all other hypotheses must bow. And he wrote extensively that, you know, now we have to understand God according to evolution, Mm. and we have to understand the Christ of evolution, the cosmic Christ of all, you know, religions and so on. Right. And and you see in his writings, he's the guy, when Marilyn Ferguson did her book, The Aquarian Conspiracy, Teilhard du Chardin was the number one influence among all the wow. New Age people at that time. Well, you know, when I went to that Triple IHS meeting that I spoke at last summer, he had written a liturgy that they performed there. And it was all New Age, you know, influence there. But uh, they chose his... Chardin? Uh, uh-huh. Chardin? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for that there. Now, <clears throat> well, I, I was going to ask you about a particular leader, but are there certain people in positions of power right now... Um, officials that we have in our government or global positions or others that you suspect uh, are largely carrying the water for these guys <laughs> or even or even organizations printing houses people like this that you think oh gosh you know I could go on about this for a while but I would just say certain things like uh, well a look at uh, look at George W Bush former president uh, when he was running for president, there was an article in the UK Telegraph uh, before he left office that Bush was uh, suspected, they suspected he was going to convert to Catholicism and that he had supposedly met with the Pope uh, over in Rome about that very issue. And then they gave a review of his presidential career uh, where he had, Karl Rove <coughs> had brought in a team of Roman Catholic philosophers to teach Bush about the principles of the Catholic Church while he was running for president. Then, of course, his brother Jeb Bush totally converted to Catholicism. Then Bush goes over to the Vatican, and when he meets with Pope Benedict, there's an image of him bowing to the Pope. And you're one, and the Pope's not bowing back. You know, it's not as right. though they're bowing to each other in respect. So he is bowing to the Pope very clearly uh, in the image that was uh, captured of him. And uh, then they asked him on EWTN when the Catholic Channel when they interviewed him. Now they'll be showing your documentary as well too, won't they? Right. Yeah, they're going to start that up soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they were interviewing President Bush. They're interviewing President Bush, and they, they ask him his final question. They say, you know, you, you famously looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes, and you, you claim you saw his soul. And he says, yeah. 
and they say, well, you know, when you looked into the eyes of Pope Benedict, what did you see? And he says, God. Okay? God. I saw God. Now, if you look at these images, I've had people tell me who are not necessarily trying to grind an axe against Rome, but that the the pictures of Pope Benedict are sometimes just scary. Mm -hmm. He has some scary, uh, you know, expressions. The sunken eyes and everything. Yeah, he has kind of dark eyes and whatnot. Sort of like that Emperor Palatine kind of guy. And then when they find out that he was the Grand Inquisitor officially, uh, Rome's great, he, right. the, the, the office of the Inquisition had been reopened under John Paul II, and the guy that was appointed as Grand Inquisitor was uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became right. Pope Benedict. Right. And then they find that out, and they're like, oh, but you've got to be kidding me. But you know, his but relationship with the Bushes go back because Neil Bush, George Bush's brother, was part of that ecumenical group that they formed together to retranslate the the Torah and the New Testament mm-hmm. and the uh, Quran in their original languages, which would be which would totally fit in with what the the Vatican is doing. We have what they have asserted about the Bible is, and this through the Middle Ages, the Jesuits in particular, uh, because the the reformers all taught that the scriptures in their original form are inspired by God and they're inerrant. They're flawless. God's mm-hmm. word is perfect in its original form. That our purpose is to discover what the original words are and translate them to the best of our ability. Uh, but that God's word is perfect. The Jesuits, however, who hated that doctrine because it, it drove so many people away from Rome, they, they developed an oath for Protestant converts who were converting from Protestantism to Roman Catholicism. And one of the things that they had to swear or affirm uh, was that the Bible was a flawed book, that it had errors in it. And because it had errors in it, it was a dead letter until it was interpreted by the Pope. And that the Pope is the only one who is inerrant or, you know, uh, infallible, in which, of course, they made official doctrine in 1869. So, in other words, the Bible, the Word of God, is flawed. The words of the Pope, however, are infallible. Mm -hmm. So whatever the Pope determines, uh, that is the truth. Even if it's in, and the Popes say, and they would say, part of what they had them swear is that the Pope has the right to add to the Scripture, he can take away from the Scripture, he can change the Scripture. The popes have said, even in the 19th century, that they have the power to dispense with the precepts of Christ himself. Whoa. If they so, yes, if they so desire, they can dispense with the precepts of Christ. Well, they've got him in a box. They don't have to let him out of the box when they decide they want to. <laughs> Well, they can certainly get rid of whatever else he says if they've got that kind of control. You know, they've got the keys, too, the keys to heaven and earth as well, too. So it doesn't surprise me they would maintain this kind of power over what's said. Uh, now, now they even control portions of the universe, right? Because uh, didn't they get a committee together to dispense limbo uh, just a few <laughs> years ago? Yeah. Which was a whole part of the universe that had little babies running around in it, and they just 
got a committee together and dissipated it in time and space. I mean, that's pretty powerful. That's power. Um, yeah. Can you work on that? Yeah, no doubt. That kind of power? Did they say where the babies went? Were they? No, that that I don't know. That I don't know. They weren't moved somewhere. What, what do you Cleveland. think? I know <laughs> Cleveland. I know we're getting here to the end, uh, and I wanted to uh, assure our listeners, you think we've talked about so much here that we've given away everything in the documentary. Not even close. This was just teaser stuff. This is the tip of the iceberg of material. Well, the killer acting, you'll have to just see (laughs) for yourself and judge, but just the content of material. But just to let you know the kind of fundamental information, uh, important information that's covered. But as we close here looking to the future, do, do you think the Catholic Church has other allies in their goal to distort or diminish the exact content of the Bible today? Uh, you know, we mentioned the conservative Bible earlier, which is a movement which I've just since found out is Phyllis Schlafly's son is running that. Oh, Yeah, wow. from the Eagle Forum. It's her son who's Does leading she have, this. Does she have hair as big as her? I don't know. But he's big get, hair. they're getting rid of passages like, for example, when, when Jesus said he's without sin, cast the first stone. Remember they said they're taking that out of the Bible? Yeah. Because it didn't espouse free enterprise principles yeah, and we're things gonna, like this? Yeah, he's without sin. We're going to hit him with stones and, and then charge number, for the money. Right. You know, a number of passages stone. Right, that didn't do conservative principles are taking out. Well, do you think that there's – I'm sorry, what were you going to well, say? Well, I, I said, like, like I like I alluded to earlier, I like the fact that the Jesus' words were still in bright red. But the conservative principles were like in like redder, redder, like red. dark red. Yeah, really, <laughs> really. Well, do you think there are other allies that that you know of or have observed, uh, Chris, in this goal to to do their next step? Oh, certainly. I mean, you you've got you've got the the United Bible Society and the American Bible Society that uh, entered into an agreement collectively with the Vatican back in 1967 through a man named Eugene Nida. There's the whole, in New York, you have the Eugene Nida Institute for Biblical Studies and whatnot. But he was the guy that brokered this deal with the Vatican and really and developed a system of interpretation called functional equivalence or dynamic equivalence, which is a fancy way of saying paraphrase. Okay? And so they use this principle of paraphrase where it's not a word-for-word translation but a thought-for-thought. So you interpret what you think the thought is in the scripture, mm. and then that's what you communicate through the paraphrase. Mm. Um, and the Vatican entered into an agreement with the United Bible Society to do hundreds of translation projects around the world. Uh, and in fact, just last year, the American Bible Society had presented the Pope with a polyglot Bible that had the seals of the Vatican and the United Bible or American Bible Society on it. Hmm. So it's very clear that Rome has been working with uh, these Bible societies on, on translations that are being sent all over the world. And what's very interesting is one of the uh, Bibles, one of the, the more recent one, the American Bible Society, called the Contemporary English Version, the CEV, has completely removed the word Antichrist. Uh, they've Whoa. taken that word completely out of the Bible. Hmm. And they've replaced it with the phrase, enemy of Christ. And so you can see where this... And of course, that, that cuts the meaning of the word in half. So it wouldn't be vicar of Christ no, no longer. Right, exactly. Huh. 
Very um, interesting. Because Antichrist means both one who's against Christ, and it also means another Christ, one who's standing in the place of Christ. Okay. Okay. That's the specific meaning of the word Antichrist. Uh, but that meaning is cut in half uh, with enemy of Christ. You know, you, uh, you, you have said one or two provocative things in this interview. I think I, I seem to recollect. Yeah, I seem to, all pretty vanilla. I seem to recollect one or two poignant things here, and, and you take great care in your documentary to document the references you use to make these very provocative claims, because they are so explosive. Do you believe the accuracy of those that you cite? It's one thing to find a reference, but it's only as strong as the accuracy and the motives of the person you cite. Um, and since it's so explosive, we have to take extra measure. And I know you spent a lot of effort in this project trying to do that. Are, are you confident that these explosive things, that, that the, the perspectives of the people who make these citations are not exaggerating, if not distorting the quotations they cite due to some kind of uh, upfront anti-Catholic bias even before they do it? Because I'm sure those claims are going to be made uh, in this. And, and it's because the stakes are so high with this. Uh, because if these statements are both accurate and in context, I mean, it should drastically affect the worldview of many people. Do, do, do you feel like the people are that reliable that you had that just didn't have an axe to grind but are calling them straight up? Well, certainly. In fact, you know, uh, something I try to do in all of my documentaries is not to rely upon any one source of information, but to have a whole cross-section of historical data from, from, you know, throughout history. So we're going back to ancient resources that go back, you know, a thousand years or more, uh, and then up through the Middle Ages all the way up into modern times. And we're dealing with historians, you know, old and new. Uh, we're dealing with, you know, uh, quotes where you're talking about American presidents. You're talking about some of the leading reformers. Uh, you're talking about, you know, uh, mainstream people who are highly respected in the mainstream, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Right. He's a great one to quote when you're talking about Rome, because most people know Spurgeon as the Prince of Preachers. He's quoted by everybody from Billy Graham to Ray Comfort and all the other preachers in between. Uh, and uh, yet here's a guy who wrote extensively about the activities of the Roman Catholic Church in the 19th hmm. century. But now you don't hear nearly as much about this now. I mean, the, the, oh. the, the top evangelical leaders are so strong on ecumenicalism that they're hesitant to make waves by making these kind of charges, aren't they? Exactly. I mean, you, you've got, it's, uh, when you talk about, you know, is the counter-reformation at work in Protestant organizations, I would, I would give a resounding yes. Uh, when you've got, you know, your major outwardly Protestant evangelical leaders, guys like Robert Schuller. Mm -hmm. Schuller, who flew to Rome. He's one of our favorites. Yeah. Regular, regular guest. Yeah. Met with the Pope. He met with him privately several times, but met with him specifically to get the Pope's blessing uh, for building his crystal cathedral. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. And you just look at, why does he need the Pope's blessing for the mm -hmm. crystal cathedral? Well, I'm sure it's filled with that spirit, whatever it was that, that he picked it, up there. Yeah. Hey, well, you know, <laughs> so, I, I, it's like the old Egyptian embalmer used to say, this about wraps things up. But uh, I, 
You're, you're on a roll today, man. I don't you're know like, what it is. It's not in the water right here. So. Um, I stayed up, you know, late nights watching a documentary. Yeah. There you uh, go. <clears throat> in closing, what can the list when our listeners when they pick up your documentary and watch it, and and once they gain their bearings from what they've seen, what can they do constructively with this information that you disclose? What what is the best use uh, of this information once they receive it? Well, I'm hoping, you know, the thing that uh, always uh, gratifies me the most is, you know, when people use it to educate uh, their family members, whether they put, do it through, you know, Bible study groups, have presentations at churches and so on, uh, show it to their friends. I mean, this is, is designed as a, you know, a witnessing tool for really anyone, believers and non-believers alike. We always try to do that. Uh, with our films, we we make sure to present the gospel very clearly, word for word, right out of the Bible, right up front toward the beginning of the film, uh, and then we talk about the gospel throughout the film. Um, we also, you know, we try to be careful in confronting uh, Roman Catholicism and Catholic doctrine and so on, and we try to point out that the reformers, most of your reformers, began as Catholic priests. These were not guys who were into anti-Catholic right. whatever. They themselves were Catholics, mm-hmm. uh, but they got the Word of God into their hands, and they believed it, and they wanted to share the same with others right. uh, so that men might be saved. And I also would think that once our listeners see this and they see the blood that flowed from our Christian predecessors that gave of their lives and their safety, for the Bible, maybe that will motivate them to pick up their Bible a little bit more frequently and actually treasure the information that's inside the Bible when they think of the sacrifices given for it and also to put up some kind of defense for people that try to mess with it. So I'm hoping that's something that comes out as well, too. Uh, in, in closing here, can you give us any hints as to the subject matter of the, the next installment in this documentary series or other works you've got planned? You know, we bring this thing up, uh, our history, it's called the, you know, A Lamp in the Dark, The Untold History of the Bible, and we bring the history really up through the 19th century. Mm-hmm. We talk a little bit about <coughs> the 20th century, but what we do, what we're going to do in part two, which is called Tears Among the Wheat, is really pick up the story in the 19th century with the Oxford Movement in England, and we talked briefly about two very interesting characters, controversial guys, Westcott and Hort, who developed their own uh, Greek Testament, uh, Greek New Testament, called, that would be called the critical text. But their chief manuscript came right out of the Vatican Library. Hmm. And, of course, we asked the question, is this a coincidence, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that Codex Vaticanus would become the chief Greek manuscript uh, in the late 19th and then throughout the 20th century. Mm. Today, that manuscript, the Vatican book, the Vatican Greek New Testament, is considered the the most ancient and reliable Greek manuscript in biblical scholarship. And so we're going to pursue that question. How mm. did this come about, uh, and should Christians be concerned about it? That's what Tears Among the Wheat is going to be about. Is there a lot of blood and slaughter and stuff like that in that one, too? <laughs> or just you know, mostly, mostly paper cuts and stuff like that? From the <laughs> paper cuts, but we are going to make sure that people understand that while Codex Vaticanus was making its way out of the Vatican Library, that people were still being persecuted and killed 
by the Inquisition there in Rome underground. Uh, Spurgeon writes about this, how they had ovens underground, these beehive-shaped ovens, and they were still burning people alive. Wow, I had never heard any of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whoa. You know, Uh, sometimes Spurgeon wrote about that? Yep. You can learn wow. something even in a Chris Pinto documentary. Yeah, it's I know. A, it's so amazing. It's vanilla most of the time. <laughs> once, once in a blue moon, you'll back into a new piece of information. Wow. Well, um, if you need two handsome actors for Westcott and Hort, we can hook you up. Oh, yeah. With some folks, okay? <laughs> Are you, Absolutely, you guys. Anybody like that. Um now, in, in, uh, I want to tell our listeners, they need to go get your documentary. And really, the, beyond what you teach, the subject matter, the most important thing uh, to remind them is that Dr. Future and Tom Bionic are in are it. Are in it. Uh, prominently displayed. You'll be able to actually see what Tom Bionic looks like for change. That's right. And, yeah. and Robert Hyde, yeah. who uh, one of our regular Future Quake guests, mm-hmm. uh, meets his demise as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be a fascinating uh, story for you all. So how can the people obtain this documentary and others of yours and keep up with the other projects you have underway? Well, to go to our website, which is uh, adullamfilms.com, uh, and that's A-D-U-L-L-A-M, films, F-I-L-M-S, dot com. Uh, and we've got it right there on the front page. Um, it's a three-hour documentary. And we are, in fact, we're waiting for the copies from the duplicator even now, uh, but they should be in mm-hmm. Thursday. So we will, by the time you air this, our copies will be in and, and we'll be shipping them out. Did you send uh, this to Jesuit Press for duplication? Yeah. Not Jes- yet. Okay, because <laughs> you might want to double-check the copies if you did. Jesuit Assassins <laughs> Quarterly might do a feature story right. on it. <laughs> Brother Chris, all, all kidding aside, what, what the information in this documentary is critically important. Uh, the Bible we have was paid for with the blood of our predecessor, wonderful Christian brothers and sisters, who gave their lives. Many burned at the stake or died, lost their possessions. So you would have a Bible to read, and, and Tom and I would have a Bible to read. Yeah. And uh, if anything, we, sh- we should study this material as a legacy and as a tribute to them, and most of all, to our to our heavenly Father and to Jesus Christ, uh, for for the living Word of God and for His preservation, mm-hmm. and, and our desire and our thirst to pursue truth, and to desire living our lives in accordance with the Word of God. So I want to th- I want to thank you so much for being with us, Brother Chris. I hope the Lord blesses this with a lot of people that see this and the next projects that you have underway. Well, thank you very much, you guys. God bless you guys, and and. Uh... Uh, may the Lord continue to bless your ministry. I think you guys are doing a great job here at Future Quake. Well, we appreciate you spreading the Thank good you. word about us. And thanks again. All right. Thanks, you guys. God bless you. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. Man, that was something else. Most, bionic. most important thing, we are both in a lamp in the dark. You need to get copies. Indeed. You want to see both of us and Robert Hyde in there? Yeah. Be sure and check it out. Hard to find me because I'm wearing a helmet. Well, there's a picture where you're not before you get killed yeah, in there, too. Yeah, it's like, where's Waldo? Try to see if find Tom Bionic. Uh, but right now, let's find Merv, who also is in. Oh, yeah. Mom plays a pro- prominent role uh, as the Apostle Paul. Yeah. But he can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. 
That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, come back for tomorrow's Tremors. What else? That's it. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. It's a big party here at the Future Quake compound, but I'm not complaining, even though I've been here for like eight hours. Maybe I'm complaining, but in a good nature way. Bionic. <laughs> you know, that wasn't a middle name. That was a paragraph. Uh, I know. It's hard to get the... That was um, a soliloquy. It's hard to get the little thing, you know, get uh-huh. all those letters in the little box. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you again. Uh, closing out a week here on Future Quake with something we call... What? <laughs> Dr. Future. <laughs> Say what? It's called Bug Doctor Future. Well, yeah, that's probably be a more Dr. accurate name Future. for it. You know, you've got this big, long middle name, but then you, you can't answer my question because well, it is tomorrow's Tremors or today's review of the Future's News. Now, I said that last week. Yeah, I think you got it mostly right last week. Yep. So, okay. You should ask. Is it once every five years? You, you, should, right? you should ask, man. Whew, boy, we are sure different than other Christians. Shows, aren't we? I know we don't take anybody's. Radio. We don't take anybody's money, and we love the Lord. And <laughs> I think there's a few more that love the Lord. Okay. I'd say we're not. <laughs> oh, I'd say sweet. we're not unique in that respect. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's wonderful to be with all you all here. We have some news stories here, but I'd like to make a quick announcement. And by the way, we have a, we've had a great guest this week, and Chris Pinto always mm-hmm. has fascinating research. He He's does. the man. He's as good as anybody out there for a guest. But we have an extra special guest next week, don't we? Yeah. Sort of takes us to a new level. I know. I don't know how on earth you got the guy with the with the, the, the Homer Simpson voices there. I'm still in awe of that. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, you need to go uh, get your friends and neighbors and tune in, not only for this show this week, but for next week. You're going to be in for some real surprises. Should I give them some, a little bit of sh- foreshadowing? No, no foreshadowing. All right, right. I'm not going to give them any foreshadowing. Oh, now you're doing it. Yeah. Anyway, um, there's something serious I want to bring up about um, uh, something that's come up, and, and, a, and a number of people, future quake futurians, have emailed me about it. And it was something I found out shortly before now, and uh, was trying to sort of find out what was really going on. And that is regarding um, uh, a show that was on Dr. Stan Monteith's uh, recently. And um, he had a guest on my name of Chris Wynn. Mm-hmm. I think it was back on like the 16th or something of mm-hmm. August. And uh, this guy had been on before. He'd written some books about is, is, Islam, the religion of Islam, and you know some of the threats there. And it was a real popular book. He'd had him on a number of times for that. But he talked about something different this time. It was called, uh, his website and his new books out is called YadaYahweh.com. What? Which I think it means like all about Yahweh or something like that dot com. But uh anyway, this guy's if you look him up, Chris Wynn, W I N N, it's fascinating. He was like a big super guy and business entrepreneur, made a billion bucks. Mm-hmm. 
and then it's gone doing this kind of thing. But anyway, uh, Dr. Stan had him on, and uh, this guy was talking about some really far-out stuff about that there really wasn't a new covenant. There was a renewed covenant. Jesus never really meant to start a new movement, Christianity. Uh, he was saying that the Holy Spirit was a female Sweet. And that Jesus was not really, you know, divine like in the nature that that the Father is divine. Uh, awesome. Just a lot of, in, in, you know, saying a lot of comments about. here. Well, saying a lot of comments about, you know, <laughs> Paul's letters and most of the like New Vegas. Testament books really Pulled were not a little handle and from comes God. Out triple, yeah, triple heresy. But anyway, <laughs> the impression a lot of people got from Doctor Stan was that he was very supportive and sympathetic. And I think one of the biggest comments made. Was was he had said something about the the um, uh, Paul's books that he had said also he had had a lot of suspicions about Paul's books and so did Thomas Jefferson, which we know Thomas Jefferson ended up just writing his own Bible that was not really supernatural at all. I know. I mean, it took all that stuff out of the Bible. So um, and you know and he said a lot of things of praise to this guy and really praised him for his research and everything, and so evidently a, a number of people, had, which is completely understandable. Said, "What's up? You know, what's mm-hmm. what's what's so all this?" So you felt the work? need to re- respond and call him. Right? Well, it's funny. Um, I I'd heard it once, and actually, they've since recorded a show with Constance Cumby on with him, where she came to his defense and said, "Look, you know, these are cheap shots." There's a website called Watching the Prayer that comes up a lot, mm-hmm. and they usually go after a lot of people. Mm-hmm. They have some good information, but then they sort of go after a lot of folk, just about everybody. Well, and they and they had pointed this stuff out, and so. Uh, Dr. Stan had pointed out on his show, if you got any questions on where I stand, you call me. You call me and ask. I had done that before with Dr. Stan when I had found out he had been a member of the Council of National Policy. Hmm. And I just asked him straight up. I thought that's what Christians were supposed to do. And he told me that in the early days it was supposed to be something good, something else. And then it got to be just sort of a thing that was taken over by one political party to push their agenda rather Mm -hmm. than Christians getting together. And he got out of it. So I took that at face value. Mm-hmm. And I did the same thing this time, just as he had requested and what the Bible suggests. You go to a brother and you find out directly what's going on rather than just talk about him. And I asked him some very explicit questions. I asked Dr. Stan, um, what do you think about the letters of Paul? Do you believe they're inspired? And he says, yes, I believe they're inspired from God. And I asked him about whether he believed the divinity of Jesus Christ and in the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. And he confirmed it. Yes, he does. And also, uh, you know, I asked him some similar things about where he stood, you know, about, about Scripture itself and things. And, and everything was there. But he said that, you know, um, he'd had this guy on for some other topics that were really good. Uh, and he probably would have handled it differently now, in hindsight, hmm. if she'd done differently. Okay. And I thought, boy, you know, I can relate to that because how many shows have we done? Well, I'll speak for myself. That None. I wish I could have handled differently. <laughs> None. Um, We're perfect all the time at the gate. So uh, I just wanted to give that feedback because there have been some people emailing us asking well, about that. Okay. Well, and I think those are worthwhile questions to ask. Sure. But I think the appropriate thing is to go to the person where it comes up. And, you know, when someone has a track record for decades in a certain area, while you you never can be sure, you always have to be diligent. It's a good thing to go check out with that person first before He's you. He's a sabotan. Let's just get right down to it. Well, I'm sure he appreciates you saying that. <laughs> You're on that sabotan kick lately. Everybody's aren't you? a sabotan suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll Sorry. I'm sure someone will take that quote. It'll end up on yeah, the watching I know, a prayer. I, know. I don't care. 
Right, so they got a whole Tom Bionic I, section I'm of the I'm sure internet. that they have an encyclopedia about all the various things that I might have said. It take a whole server you know, just to control yeah, have your information. The thing of smoking quotes. every time, <laughs> every time people so, quit. Goes I hope away. I didn't do more harm than good. But um, listeners, that's sort of the scoop on that. And uh, you know, Doctor Stand uh, has been faithful in doing his thing. Yeah. Uh, if if you see like on a regular basis, he starts uh, saying that the Bible's not true or something. We we ought to you know then say something about that. But until then, you know we've talked and um, I told him he'd probably be needing to help explain me to people on his show in us a number of times. But you know the, the reason I bring this up is that I'd like people to pray for us. Yeah. Well, there's a few people who are watching the prayer that we know pray for us that we mm-hmm. don't misstep because we're in stuff that's. That's you know it's like a minefield. The topics we talk, we don't talk about the down the middle of the plate stuff. I have to, I have to come in here stuff. in a wheelchair just because of the stuff that I read each morning. It's like <laughs> both legs are gone because well, it's such a minefield. And we try to pray when we do these shows and ask for wisdom, mm-hmm. but we need wisdom from you all because these are days of deception. Yep. And I'm afraid there's going to be times now and then when we make poor judgment or don't know the story or whatever like that. I just want to assure our listeners yep. that we we love the Lord, we love God's Word, we're committed to it. Um, we try to keep an open mind of other believers who are committed to God's word that have some different views wow. on the significance of it, and I think that's okay, okay as long as the commitment is to God's word. Yeah, but uh, I just leave it at that, I guess. There you go, man. Okay, on to some news. Yeah. Um, do you want me to? Um, I'll tell you what. Mine is mine is quick. Mine is just one paragraph. Okay, but you said you really like my story. I, I but do I'll, like. We'll I do wait. like your. But but since we got ten minutes to. Dr. Future explaining Dr. Stan. Yeah, you know, I mean, not not just nine minutes, okay. not ten. Read your story. All right. This is via CNN. Surviving Fort Hood shooter suspect arrested at golf course, officer says. November 5th, 2009. And there's actually a specific reading. I'm re- reason I'm reading the story. Okay. Uh, a senior official who was playing golf Thursday near Fort Hood, Texas, told CNN he witnessed the arrest of one of the two surviving suspects of the shooting at the Army installation. Shortly after the shooting, the officer said military police told him to clear the course and he saw other MPs surround, uh, surround the building that held the golf course, golf carts, he said. The senior officer said he ducked into a nearby house for cover as 30 to 40 cars carrying MPs approached. He said he saw a soldier in battle dress uniform, his hands in the air. The MPs ordered him to lie on the ground and open his uniform, presumably to ensure he was not carrying explosives, the senior official said. He said an MP told him that the authorities considered the man to be a suspect in the shootings after having overheard the man say he was with the shooter. The man was surrounded by 20, for 25 to 30 minutes until a convoy of vehicles arrived led by a Crown Victoria and carrying men in suits, and he was taken away, the senior officer said. Now, the interesting thing about that, five hours later, uh, the the fact that the man was surrounded for 25 to 30 minutes until a convoy arrived led by a Crown Victorian carrying men in suits and was taken away was deleted. The, that part of the story was deleted? Yeah. You went back to the same source uh-huh. and you found it was deleted? Found out it was deleted. Huh. So, but you printed it out before then? Yes, I did. Well, it's a good thing you did. I had a I had a hunch that something was yeah. awry with that. And Somebody I'm, said a little too, sort of like when they reported Building Seven had fallen when it was standing up behind them. Yeah, a little bit a little bit similar to like that. Um, if somebody wanted to go see maybe the Manchurian Candidate or something like that, 
Yeah, yeah. I got a story on that too. Oh, interesting. Um, what do you make of that? How do you interpret what that's about? Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are uh, um, they'll make a lot of sense. One of which uh, is well, this, it belongs on our show then. Yeah. Well, welcome to Future Quake, where nothing makes sense. Um, one of the things was this this gentleman. Um, I can't remember his name. Hassan something. Uh, he was a student and a graduate of Virginia Tech. Uh, that is verified. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's interesting is uh, that I cannot verify is that at one time he was being treated by the same guy that uh, looked at the, the Korean gentleman who shot up Virginia Tech two years ago. Wow. So, um, yeah. What's the odds of that? I don't know. Something something's weird weird is going on there, and I would say it was just a coincidence, except for the fact that this guy got picked up. Supposedly, one of the people involved got picked up by a bunch of guys in suits in a Crown Vic, and then they deleted the deleted that yeah. line out of the story five hours later. Yeah. Didn't they say at one time they thought three people were involved? Four people. Then it went to three. Then it went to two. Then it went to one. Then it went back to two. Then it's to one. And suddenly the guy's yeah. got Al Qaeda connections. He was like the twentieth hijacker or yeah. something. Yeah, I don't know. Or I don't know. That, nothing. Nothing about that story makes any sense. One thing you I can be sure of: at least we know way. our media is trustworthy, and they'll give us a complete story and not be <laughs> and not be uh, influenced by the government in any way. No, any agenda. I'm glad they would we got have. that all laid out. Mm-hmm. That they'll stay on top of it and give us a story, no matter mm-hmm. how uncomfortable it is for our mm-hmm. government. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. I'm here for you. You know, that's as of this recording date. Yeah. This is the news. Yeah, if I don't uh, make it to next week's show, you'll know why. Yeah, yeah. And then there'll be, like, something taken out of the Future Quake show, just like that story. Yeah, yeah, it'll be there'll Don be, Bionic. There'll be no lifting. Nothing <laughs> I'm Dr. Future, and... <laughs> well, can I share something about dimensional doorways? Sure. Something a little bit sure. more calming yeah, yeah, and yeah, soothing. Yeah, yeah, this is a great story. This comes from The Register, one of the big newspapers in uh, Britain. Mm -hmm. Something may come through dimensional doors at the LHC, which is the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, This is uh, is a top boffin. I love that word they use. That's for scientists, I think. A top boffin? Yeah, I think that's what they use. That's like a fish or something, is it? Well, not puffin, isn't it? No, that's a bird. Okay. Well, it's uh, that's what they use for scientists. Okay, geek. Okay. At the Large Hadron Collider, LHC, says that the Titanic machine may possibly create or discover previously unimagined scientific phenomena or, quote, unknown unknowns. For example, quote, an extra dimension. Out of this door might come something, or we might send something through it, said Sergio Bertolucci who is Director for Research and Scientific Computing at CERN, briefing reporters, including the Register, at CERN headquarters earlier this week. Well, so he actually works there. He's not just He's some... the head of research. Yeah, wow. Director of Research has said that we might have something come out or go in. That's a, that's a very, that's a position of authority right there. Yeah. The LHC, yeah, not just some transient walking off the street. So. Yeah. The LHC, built inside a 27-kilometer circular subterranean tunnel, beneath the Franco-Swiss border outside Geneva, functions like sort of an orbital motorway for extremely high-speed hadrons, typically either protons or lead ions. See, I've always wanted to take the one there at Stanford and put a hamburger in it, fire it down the tube. At like fire a hamburger? <laughs> Bow! Yeah, okay. I like it. 
Yeah, thanks for adding miles an hour. What would come out of that <laughs> if you fired a hamburger? The differences are, firstly, that the streams of particles are moving at velocities within a whisker of light speed, such that each stream has as much energy as it is in a normal car going at 1,000 miles an hour. Secondly, the beams are arranged in such fashion that the two streams swerve through one another occasionally, which naturally results in huge numbers of incredibly violent head-on collisions. These collisions are sufficiently violent that they are expected to briefly create conditions similar to those obtaining uh, countless eons ago, not long after the Big Bang, when the entire universe was still inconceivably small, when it was smaller than a proton for quite some time, seemingly, still with all the stuff that nowadays makes up all the supernormity of space and galaxies and so forth packed in somehow. I like hamburgers down the Hadron Collider chute better. That would be a better story. Yeah. But, you know, I can't even imagine myself the size of a proton, much less the universe. Um, it says, naturally, some extremely strange phenomena are to be expected when one mangles the very fabric of space-time itself in this fashion. Various eccentric nutballs have claimed, hopefully they're not referring to us. Future Quake um, has claimed. <laughs> that this would doom humanity in one fashion or another perhaps converting the entire Earth, everything on it, and possibly the rest of the universe, into a strangelet soup, monopole muglatoni, or some other sort of frightful subparticulate bl- blamange or custard. What? <coughs> it is blamange. We into, like, iron, like iron chef. Blamange pudding, I always remember uh, on the show when, when the uh, these aliens from Andromeda were churning tennis players into blamange pudding. No, I didn't get that. Or no, was, no, the 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 Andromeda alien was blamage pudding, but it was it was uh, turning British people into Scotsmen uh, because Scotsmen can't play tennis, and the and the aliens want to win Wimbledon. So that was a TV Whoa. show. That's blamage pudding. It says it's also been suggested that cack-handed boffins, there you go, boffins again, at the LHC might inadvertently call into being a miniature black hole and carelessly drop this into the center of the Earth rather irritatingly causing the planet to implode. It is certainly to be hoped that the button-marked call black hole into being on the control board is some kind of flip-down cover. I think being silly here. Uh, obviously, that's all rubbish. But some boffins have speculated, again, uh, that black holes may alternatively act as space warp wormhole portals into alternative universes or something. This would seem to chime with uh, Bertolucci's remarks on hyperdimensional doors out of which might come some unspecified somethings. Now, Sweet. I only printed the first page of it. I have there. a friend of mine. He who goes into more detail about That's interesting. Like this. I have a friend of mine who prays against that daily, the Hadron Collider, because he feels... You know what? He must have did his prayers. Did you hear that it was some kind of bird droppings or bread fell off a bird that actually shut it down recently? No, but I know that it keeps breaking down, so his prayers yeah. must be doing something. That is a powerful prayer. I, yeah. Well, He's a righteous man. It must avail much. It, yeah, he's something else, man. Well, you know, if you wonder what that would be like when a dimensional doorway is open, you might want to watch that movie, The Mist. Yeah. Uh, that that actually was part of a military experiment to open a dimensional doorway, and it wow. got pretty rough. It's like a documentary. Yeah. Wow. But I hated the giant spiders. Ooh. They were bad. They had acid-like uh, webs. Would you have to wear, like, a giant boot? A giant Squeak, boot. You know, smash them? Yeah, I, I don't remember seeing the giant boot. But anyway, um, all kidding aside, uh, people are worried about it. Yeah, I know. Well, they ought to And be. you know what scientists, my fellow scientists like me, what they're doing? Eh, who cares about the risk of destroying the universe? It's full steam ahead. Yeah, meanwhile, Jack Parsons and friends are like, 
We gotta talk to Lam again. Uh-huh. We gotta get well, more marching orders. Shiva is the representative of CERN, right? That's yes, the Shiva statue. Yeah. I, and I believe we've covered death. that here. Actually, they've got this gigantic circle, and Shiva is actually stepping through the thing. So great, sweet. Well, do you have a story for us? Yes. TV footage shows Afghan insurgents with U.S. ammo and weapons. Via the AP, television footage broadcast Tuesday showed insurgents handling what appears to be U.S. ammunition in a remote area of eastern Afghanistan that American forces left last month following a deadly firefight that killed eight troops. The U.S. military said the forces that left the area said they removed and accounted for their equipment. Al Jazeera broadcast videos showing insurgents handling weapons, including anti-personnel mines, with U.S. markings on them. Television station reported that insurgents said they seized the weapons from two U.S. remote outposts in Nuristan province. It was unclear when the video was filmed. The ammunition could be used against U.S. and Afghan forces, although the amount shown was not extensive. Uh, however, the footage will no doubt be used by insurgent propagandists prom- to promote their victory, quote unquote, over the Americans and encourage their supporters. Nuristan was the site of of an October 3rd battle in which 200-some fighters bombarded a joint U.S.-Afghan army outpost with small arms, rocket-propelled grenades, and mortar shells. Eight U.S. soldiers died, as well as three Afghan soldiers, in one of the heaviest losses of U.S. life in a single battle since the war began. Lieutenant Colonel Todd Vissian, a spokesman for the NATO forces, said the material of the footage appears to be U.S. equipment. He said it was unclear how the insurgents got the weapons. Uh, it's debatable whether they got them from that location, Vissian said, referring to mountainous Kandish district of Nuristan, where the nearly six-hour battle took place. Uh, that's it. They don't think they could have picked them off like some killed allies? No, they don't think so. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that we covered here was that, uh, uh, you know, the Taliban has an office in Kabul. Mm-hmm. Maybe they... Would they give them money to not yeah, attack them? Maybe they just went down... To the office and got him. No, call me crazy, but I'm having this sinking suspicion. Thank you. That we don't really understand what's going on in Afghanistan. I don't understand. Is that crazy? I don't understand what's going on there. Um, General McChrystal, who's the guy, he lead guy that there, has said he said about a month ago, there's no more than a hundred Taliban in this whole, or no more than a hundred Al Qaeda in this whole country. Yeah. Forty forty thousand troops can't find a hundred Taliban fighters. Or mm. Al-Qaeda, I'm sorry. It just almost seems like there's a whole racket that's been set up. I know Alex Jones talks about, you know, our guys using the poppy fields for their own purposes, mm-hmm. you know, and there's been a lot of shows about CIA mm-hmm. bringing in drugs to help fund their stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, it does make you wonder. Yeah. It's like some kind of weird stalemate where, like, well, they're still doing their thing. We still have ours. We sort of do a little skirmish. I mean, people are dying. I don't mean to make light of it. I mean, it's I terrible. Well, that's that's the whole thing. It's... But it would I mean, be if they have if some kind of deals going on, blasted. if they have deals going on with that stuff, that, you know, people have got to be held accountable for that. Yes. Well, can I share with you uh, about Manchurian candidates? Sweet. This was a, uh, a story. Uh, it's a little it's a little old, but uh, it was like a year old. But, but they're, they're having these regularly here. Uh, Manchurian candidates to gather in Connecticut. This is from another one of my favorite sites on Wired.com, which is, you know, more your high-tech uh, electronic people read. Yeah. And yeah. it's from something called The Danger Room. It's something that has special stories like this. Um, 
It says, for some time, the horror of the CIA's secret Cold War era mind control research has never really ended. Next month in Connecticut, uh, self-described, uh, let's see, where was I? Um, self-described victims of MK Ultra will attend the 11th annual ritual abuse secret secretive organizations and mind control conference. And they have a website. This is there. Attendees will discuss their memories of being unwitting participants in the CIA's experiments, which often involve slipping LSD to ordinary people. Now That's they've already the got the their, iceberg too. Right. They've already got their 2010 conference lined up for next August. So. Wow. Uh, it says, are all the people who attend the meeting really victims of MK Ultra? No. The organizer himself knows. Some are suffering from other, no doubt, serious mental issues. But as Jeff Stein elegantly points out in a piece for Congressional Quarterly, that's not the point. There were very real victims of MKUltra, and the CIA's decision to destroy most of the records means we will never have a final accounting. CIA Director Richard M. Helms ordered the destruction of boxes upon boxes of documents, including the treatment records of unknown numbers of patients uh agency doctors experimented on at psychiatric hospitals, including a wing of Georgetown University Medical Center, and secret locations, including military bases, stamp stallion rights. The more contemporaneous issue is that the U.S. government is again being accused of using mind-altering drugs. Now, yeah, uh, just as in the 1970s, however, as I quote, uh, in April, evidence to the contrary is mounting. Stein writes, the Washington Post Joby Warwick has also tracked down former prisoners at Guantanamo who said their minds were destabilized by repeated drug injections. Wow. Yeah, well, they used to, uh, one of the things about that whole program was, even as late as I think the 1970s, they had some program going on where they, um, Somehow they got a hold of a professional tennis player whose name escapes me right mm-hmm. this second and injected him full of an, an experimental LSD-like substance. He had an allergic reaction and died. Wow. Yeah. Why a tennis player? Oh, uh, well, because he was really fit. Okay. I thought maybe he could handle it. Rod Laver. Yeah. Uh, who knows? I don't yeah. Know. And well, then they gave that Then they gave that elephant, Jolin West gave that elephant uh, like 500 times the normal dose of LSD to see if they could right. uh, uh, do something to the elephant, and it mm-hmm. died. Killed an elephant. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just reading a story. Someone who was back in those times, one of the scientists then, they were talking about how the, their, their superiors at the CIA wanted to order, I forget, something like 20 kilograms or something of pure LSD, which was enough for something like a 100 million doses mm-hmm. and at a cost of $1 billion street value. And they couldn't produce more than a few grams. You know, the whole capacity that existed of that pure... Yeah. Well, somehow, sometime later, this big drum ended up in their office with all these jars that had enough for, like, 50 million doses. Wow. That's a lot of LSD. What were you planning to do with 50 million doses? A big party? I don't know. I don't know. That's There's a lot of questions about... A really dark block party? I don't... I mean... Well, someone who's not on LSD is our friend Murph. That's who, debatable. Who could tell you how to contact us here at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, see you on the road, bud. All right, well, we better get on out of here then, huh? Yeah, another weird, another weird tomorrow's camera. I cameras. know, i got so many other weird stories. Bring them back next week. Okay. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, another great guest next week, a really great guest. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake.